kill me, man! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles. My name's Perry Constantine. And I'm Derek Ferguson. And today, um, how you doing, Derek? Oh, pretty good, actually. Pretty good. Enjoying myself here in uh, beautiful downtown Brooklyn. We had a sudden return to summer after a couple of days where the temperature dropped down to like in the 60s and 70s mm. but now it jumped back up to like i think yesterday it was like almost 90 degrees yesterday that's actually been the norm here in uh southern japan for like the past month or so uh when i came back from chicago it was just like hit with a wall of heat and it, it's still like that now really wow yeah, yeah. i meant to ask you does it get like really hot over there oh yeah oh yeah and uh pretty because we're we're like we're kind of like on the globe, like we're kind of positioned in Florida area. So, so it's pretty warm out here. Um, we don't get like any snow. Well, we get like one day of a light dusting of snow at the most, and then it's gone by the afternoon. Um, but yeah, it stays pretty warm here. It uh, doesn't actually, especially, you know, with global warming and everything, it doesn't actually start to cool down until like November now. Really? Although it can feel pretty cold because, uh, at least inside, because Japanese homes aren't really well insulated. Mm, why is that? Um, I don't know, actually. I, I think it might have to do with um, construction standards. Uh, well, I think, like, the old construction standards, it used to be that you keep the house kind of lightweight so that the air can easily pass through so it keeps it cool in the, war- in the hot months. Um, oh, okay. And also, I think it has to do with, like, earthquake standards, because um, something about the construction of the homes, it, it makes it um, makes it easier to withstand earthquakes and that kind of thing. I don't know exactly, but something like that. Okay, I got you. Although, newer homes, they're starting to improve on that, and they're starting to use a bit more insulation, things like double-paned windows and that sort of thing. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, that was one of the surprises when I first came out here was how cold it was in the winter, even though it was only like 35 degrees. Really? No. You know, yeah, because that, because you know what? The, the only thing of like most people, I suspect the only thing I know of in Japan is, um, you know, from the movies. Right. And in the movie and in most of the movies I've seen. Unless it's like a samurai movie, but like most modern day movies, there never seems to be any winter in Japan. Yeah, there is in um, the northern parts. Like Tokyo gets snow, uh, Fukuoka gets snow, um, but in the southern area, not really. Um, but yeah, you don't see it a lot in movies, except for like Lady Snowblood and Kill Bill. <laughs> right, yeah. Like I'm saying, unless I watch like a samurai movie or watch like uh, some kind of period piece, mm-hmm. yeah, they may show like snow or do something to indicate like it's cold weather. But most modern Japanese movies, I still say, wait a minute, it's stay warm all year round because it, it never seems to snow there. Yeah, actually, you're right. I never really thought about that until now. But most movies, most Japanese movies set in the modern day, like the ones I talk about on my other show, like there's not really any any winter scenes in them. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it has to do with uh, filming schedule, although they film year-round, so I've got no clue. <laughs> That's something interesting, though. I never noticed that. Well, maybe they just don't like to show snow. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. All right, so um, last time we talked about Superman the movie, which was my suggestion. So for our next movie, uh, Derek suggested we watch Batman, 1989's Batman. Well, yeah, it because to me it seemed like the logical next step because we did Superman the movie, which, uh-huh. you know, as we said in that uh, episode, in which if you good people haven't listened to it yet, why haven't you? <laughs> uh, then it just seemed to me the next logical step because most people, even a lay person who, who you know, who are not into comics the way you and I are, when you think of Superman, then you just naturally think of Batman. Right. Or when you think of Batman, you think of Superman. I mean, they're like uh, peanut butter and jelly, uh, peanut butter and chocolate, you know. Or to use the more obvious metaphor, day and night. Yeah, well, bingo, there you go, yeah. So it just seemed to me, uh, you know, okay, we do Superman, okay, well, let's just bite the bullet and go right to Batman. And in speaking of that, there actually are a few Superman connections to this movie because Tom Mankiewicz wrote the original script and Warner Brothers did think about hiring Richard Donner to direct. And Donner, if he had done it, would have wanted to cast Mel Gibson as Batman. Yeah, yeah. Mel Mel Gibson, uh, at one time, I believe Kevin Costner was a serious contender. Yeah, he was one of the people who was up for it as well. Um, Kiefer Sutherland was up for Robin, actually, when he was originally in the script. Okay. Um, There was also Steven Spielberg was at one point interested in directing it. um, And he wanted Harrison Ford as Batman and Michael J. Fox as Robin. Uh, Tim Curry as the Joker, Dustin Hoffman as the Penguin, uh, Gina Davis as Silver St. Cloud, John Pertwee as Alan as Alfred, Burt Reynolds as Commissioner Gordon, Martin Sheen as Harvey Dent, and Richard Dreyfuss as Rupert Thorne. Mm, okay, see, okay. Now, see, that's a Batman movie I definitely would have went to see. Yeah, and um, Donner also, you know, we wanted Gibson for Batman, uh, Fox for Robin, Willem Dafoe for the Joker and Joe Pesci for the Penguin, which would have been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Joe Pesci, okay, yeah, I, definitely I could, could definitely, see that. I could definitely see Joe Pesci as the Penguin. That that would have been a really good choice. Matter really? of fact, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Fact, no, I would say matter of fact, he probably would have been. I, I know, you know, a lot of people they love Danny DeVito as the Penguin, but. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, folks, I know we're not talking about Batman Returns. We'll get there eventually, but Mm -hmm. I tend to digress, so just live with it. Uh, You know, while I love what he did, I felt that he he really, like, went too far out Mm -hmm. there in some regards. I think a lot of that is also on Burton as well. Um, But I think if you had had done, like, the more comics accurate penguin who was kind of like this wheeler and dealer mob type guy then joe pesci would have been perfect right yeah exactly now see that's what i think of i i um i think that if joe pesci had done it that's what we would have got we got we would have got more like the mob boss yeah you know type of penguin as opposed to the one we got in uh you know with the and as a matter of fact dan devito 
was adamant he did not want to play it at all. It was Jack Nicholson that talked him into playing it. Jack Nicholson Who, told him this. And Jack Nicholson also did the same thing to Morgan Freeman because Morgan Freeman didn't wasn't really interested in being in Batman Begins. But then yeah, Jack yeah. Nicholson talked to him. He said, "Look, do ask for a ton of money and do it, and you you won't have to work again if you want if you don't want to." And yeah, and that's what he, he exactly. Basically, yeah. That's what he told Danny DeVito. He said, "Listen, ask for a ton of money and go put your kids through school, man." Mm-hmm. And then Dan DeVito said, "No, something. That's exactly what he did. He, yeah. he said the money. He said the money that he made just from Batman Returns said paid for his kids' uh, schooling." Yeah, and um, so who they eventually ended up decided going with, um, you know, was uh, Michael Keaton, who was not considered a, a good choice at all. Like me, I was, you know, I was the, I was, a, I was a little kid when this movie came out. I was born in '83. This came out in '89. I don't think I even saw it in the theater. I only saw it on home video. But you, you were a grown man at the time. So what was it like back then in the lead up to this movie when they announced like Michael Keaton and all that? The ramifications of Michael Keaton playing Batman resonated so strongly in this country that it was even a front page story of the Wall Street Journal. If you can believe that. Yeah. That's and this is how, before superhero movies were considered anything. Like, I mean, like today, it's no that that's not a surprise. But back then, that would have been unbelievable. Oh well, if there had been an internet back then, you know, forget about it. The world would have cracked in two. Right. There wasn't a but. But Warner Brothers did get like they said they got like literally thousands upon thousands of letters and postcards and telegrams uh, begging them, no, please do not let Michael Keaton play Batman because everybody was convinced that Michael Keaton played Batman, this movie was going to be a comedic disaster. Right, cause, because, well, I mean, they had, they had some precedent because Michael Keaton, his biggest role at the time was probably Mr. Mom, and then you combine that with the the last time they did anything Batman-related in other media, it was the, the 66 show, which took the camp tone. Right, yeah, and remember, Michael Keaton was just coming off of, because I believe, uh, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice came and out they, before this, yeah. Right, yeah, Beetlejuice had come out, you know, before this. So, I mean, so you can understand why people felt the way they did when they said, okay, this movie's going to be a comedian. As a matter of fact, Warner Brothers, in order to massage the public, they threw together, I mean, the most bare-bone trailer you could ever imagine. This trailer did not have anything except a couple of scenes from the movie. It didn't have what we think of as a trailer nowadays. It didn't have any credits. It didn't have any music. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it didn't have nothing. You went to the movie theater, and 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 if you saw the trailer, you saw like 30 seconds of scenes with the Batmobile, a brief scene with Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and a couple of scenes with uh, Michael Keaton as Batman, and that was it. Yeah, and that's... But it was, and that and they and they um, they screened that randomly, like they just chose a random theater to show the to show it out, and then it becomes such a hit, like it got a standing ovation that it ended up being bootlegged at comic conventions after that. Yeah, yeah, because but but it but it had the desired effect in that you know uh, the public at large said, okay, maybe this isn't going to be as bad as we thought it was going to be. Yeah. Now. Sherman, we got to get in the Wayback Machine. 
And we have to go back to the summer of I'm going to play Mr. Peabody. Quite appropriate. Quite appropriately. <laughs> we got to get in the way back machine. We got to go back to 1989. Because as you say, you know, you weren't around then. And well, I was around. I was just too young to really know around. what was going on. Yeah. But for those people who weren't around, and and I've told this story before, but there actually is no adequate way for me to... I mean, I could easily sit here for the next three hours and describe the bat frenzy mm-hmm. that took hold of this country in the summer that this movie came out. I have never seen anything like it since then. Mm-hmm. You could not go anywhere without seeing the bat symbol. The bat symbol was on everything. People would walk around with bat tattoos, with uh, the bat symbol cut into their hair. I have seen, it, I've seen that those in like um, in videos. There's this documentary that came out. Um, it was called Batmania, and it talked all about like the the old '60s TV show, and then what happened the summer before Batman came out. And they showed like the the news reports of, and these weren't these weren't like comic book fanboys. These were just normies getting this done. This was everybody. I mean, yeah. people who had people who had never thought of Batman before got caught up in the frenzy because you got to remember something. It also had the push behind it because Batman is one of the few movies that had two soundtracks. That's right. Yeah, it had the one done by Danny Elfman with the now iconic Batman uh, theme song that mm-hmm. was also used in uh, Batman the Animated Series. Right, and it, and it also had the score done by Prince. Mm-hmm. Now, people always ask me. They say, "Well, Derek, you know about movies. How did they ever get Prince to do a soundtrack for Batman?" And I said, "Well, very simply. I said very simply. Prince went to them and asked, could he do it? <laughs> he did. Prince was a Batman fan. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, who isn't a Batman fan? You know, but I think that people are really surprised when they hear that a lot of people. Oh, what? Wait a minute, Prince like Bat? Yeah, Prince like Batman. And so, one, yeah, and that that was actually one of the things that contributed to some of the the worries too, because you know you're getting a, a pop star to do a Batman soundtrack, so they that I think that probably contributed to the worry that it would be more comedic in tone as well. Well, that's if you didn't know Prince, right? I mean, if you know Prince, and then when people did actually start to hear the music. From the movie, that did a lot to say, okay, this is going to be a major production. But yeah, like I said, you could not go anywhere that summer without either hearing the Prince music or seeing the bat symbol Mm -hmm. somewhere, everywhere, anywhere. And the night that I went to see it, and I'll never forget it because it was one of the one of my favorite movie going experiences in my life. Uh, first of all, you got to recognize that that was kind of an extraordinary summer for movies. Anyway, we had uh, a James Bond movie, License to Kill. Mm-hmm. We we had uh, not only a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but a Friday the 13th movie. Uh, Do the Right Thing, Lethal Weapon 2. Damn. Me and a bunch of friends of mine, about six or seven friends of mine, uh, there was a midnight showing of Batman mm-hmm. on Broadway. So what we did, excuse me, we all met up. We went to see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Was that also that year too? 
It was also that summer. Yep. Wow. Went to see went to see that. Came out of that theater. Went to dinner. And then walked two blocks up to the theater where they were having a midnight showing <laughs> of Batman. <laughs> in the crowd that was waiting outside, you had people in costume as the Joker, the Penguin, uh, Catwoman, every character you can think of from that. Robin. People came in costume to see this movie. Yeah. They let people inside. Everybody goes inside the movie theater. We go inside the movie theater. It is so crowded that they didn't care. They didn't care about fire codes back then because <laughs> there were people. There were people sitting in the aisle. Right. There was impromptu uh, costume contest because people just ran up on the stage and were posing and modeling their costumes, and we were applauding and cheering and all that other good stuff. Now the movie starts. Everybody sits down and the movie starts. And dun, 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 dun. And it does that slow pan while the credits are coming mm-hmm. on through that stone labyrinth. And you don't know where you're going. And you don't know what, but we know this is going to be good. And then when it's finally revealed that it's the bat symbol, well, the place goes absolutely <laughs> nuts. Because now we knew, okay. We're going to be in good hands. And mm-hmm. sure enough, we was. I mean, first of all, you got to remember that back then, people had fun when they went to the movies. We were laughing. We were cheering. When the Prince music was playing in the museum uh, scene, people got up and mm-hmm. danced. You know, it, uh, we were cheering at the right parts. We were laughing at the right parts. We caught our breath at the action sequences, which weren't that good, but I'll get into that later. <laughs> and, by, and by the end of the movie, when you get to that scene where the bat uh, light you know, where shine, yeah, the bats and Batman, he's standing on top of there. Mm-hmm. Once again, the place went absolutely berserk. Yeah. It was like, you know, yeah, I mean, I like I said, that was one of the best movie going experiences of my entire life. And I treasure the fact that I was there to see it because what you guys have now is a pale imitation of going to the movies. Nothing compares <laughs> to how the movie going experience was back in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, especially here in Japan, because in Japan, like the audience does not react at all. Yeah, like, I've heard there, that. There are yeah. no audience reactions. It's the first movie I, I saw here in Japan was The Dark Knight, and you know I'm like laughing at jokes and everything, and everyone around me they're just everyone's quiet. I it was, and it was, and then um, there have been a few exceptions. Like I, when I saw Deadpool two in the theater, people were laughing and getting into the jokes there, and. Um, when I saw um, Infinity War, people cried at the end. Yeah. But other than that, like, there's almost no reactions uh, from Japanese audiences in the movie theater. And even my girlfriend, like, she has, you know, she's Japanese. She's got two different modes. Like, when we're in the theater, she doesn't really react to the movie at all. But when we're watching, we can watch that same movie at home and she gets into it. So it's like two different versions. It's, it's I don't know how they do it. I guess that's like a cultural thing. It's, it's it is, bad, but I just, I just standards. don't. It's just amazing that they can hold it in like that, especially when they're seeing a movie for the first time. Well, here in America, the only other time, okay, like when I went to see Black Panther mm-hmm. and the two Avengers movies, that's the only time that 
I had a movie going experience comparable to going to movies back in the 1980s yeah. where people were cheering and clapping and, and leaping to their feet and standing ovations, everything like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, back in the eighties, we did that all the time, right. you know, but now people, you know, are, and also when people walked out of the movie theater, the okay, there would be a line of the people waiting to get it, it, uh to go to the next showing, right? Right. right. People would people would ask you to tell them about the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, see, of course, now everybody's saying, oh, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Now people would ask you, okay, well, what happens? Mm-hmm. They would ask you, yeah, and you tell them, and they still go in to see the movie anyway because right, right. it was a completely different. <laughs> It was a completely different planet back then, folks. That's all I can tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. So, um, now, uh, were you like a Batman fan of the comics before the movie came out? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. So, I, so what was your Im- first impressions coming out of the movie then, being a fan of the comics leading into it? Um... My first impression come okay. The first impression that I had was that I truly and honestly had never before seen anything like this. Even the Superman movie, because you gotta mm-hmm. remember that Superman movie, okay, that had come out what in 78. So we're talking like a whole decade, right? You know, before you know, but still. Batman had, had it had like elements of uh film noir, mm-hmm. you know. It took place like the Superman movie. Okay, we definitely knew when it took place. Right. They didn't mention a year, but you know, you kind of know. But with the Batman movie, with the fashion and the architecture and the technology, it was like a mashup of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. You really couldn't tell when it took place or where, you know, but you knew, but I said, but me being a science fiction comic book fan, I said, okay, well, this is an alternate world. Right, so right, right. I just went with it. But for somebody who only knew Batman cinematically from the TV show, which I enjoyed, by yeah, the way. Yeah. I enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, I knew it wasn't the Batman that a lot of people knew. I, I mean, I knew that there was another Batman that was out there. Because mm-hmm. by now, I had read, like, the Denny O'Neill. You know, Neil Adams. Right, right. The one that, like, everyone gives Frank Miller credit for darkening up Batman in the comics, but really it was O'Neill and Adams who did it first. Right, yeah. And there are elements of that in uh, of, of that here. Uh, a large part of it is also influenced by... Uh, my favorite uh, run of uh, Batman in Detective Comics, uh, Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Right. In fact, the Tom Mankiewicz script that they were originally working off it was based on a on a on a, seri- on a run that uh, Englehart had done. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, well, I definitely can see that because I, because I was like, I said, okay, yeah, well, there's some of this in here that I recognize from. You know that run. So, as okay, strictly as a comic book fan, I was delighted to no end to finally see Batman. Because folks have to remember that, yeah, we 
okay, there have been Batman on you know in TV and uh, mm-hmm. in the cartoons and in the serials, but this was the first time Batman had ever been presented as close to the comic books as any Batman fan could imagine. And I think that came about because I believe uh, Michael Uslan, who uh, taught a course in comic books at some university, I don't remember which, but uh, he was a comic book fan from way back and he was (laughs) instrumental in this movie. And I think that that was the difference, that they actually had a comic book fan who knew Batman and said, okay, well, this is who Batman really is. In fact, yeah, it says here that because Burton and Keaton had never had any previous exposure to the comics, so Uslan gave them reference material. And it says here that he gave Burton um, every issue of Batman's first year before Robin. So it was Detective Comics 27 through 37, and then he gave Keaton The Dark Knight Returns. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. And, um, well, see, that, th- yeah, that's the way to go. And also here, it's, uh, they say that Tim Burton was also influenced by The Killing Joke as well. Mm, okay. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I don't like it, but I can see it. <laughs> um, so, like, my experience going... Like, this was really kind of my first exposure to Batman that I remember. So, oh, Really? Um, you, yeah, you, yeah. You were well, because I was, I was, well, no, I was nineteen eighty nine. I was five years. I was like, you oh, know, what, five yeah. years, four, five, six years old at the time. So right. yeah, I didn't get into the comics until later. But um, but yeah, there was this, and then it was. I don't remember which I was exposed to first because back then uh, Fox was doing had uh, the Batman TV show in syndication. So like, I've got memories as a kid watching both. So I don't know which was my first exposure, but. It, it does kind of make me laugh when they talk about, you know, how, like, Warner Brothers had this kind of bad embargo with Justice League, the animated series, and how they didn't want other Batman characters to be on the show because they didn't want brand confusion and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, like, well, when I was, like, you know, five, six years old, I knew that there was this dark Batman and this comedic Batman, and I had no problem reconciling the two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, okay. It's like when I have conversations with people when they complain about Batman and Robin, mm-hmm. you know, and I tell them, oh, well, I liked it. And of course, you know, people, they look at me like I've grown a second head. But what? And I said, well, see, what it is is that the trick that you have to do is that you have to divorce that movie from the three previous ones and just take it as a sequel slash remake slash homage to the 1966 Batman. Right. And if you take it that way, yeah, Batman and Robin works. Mm-hmm. But the point that I'm trying to make is that I'm with you that, yeah, my brain is sophisticated enough that it can hold room for the concept of more than one Batman. Batman can be presented in more than one way. Mm -hmm. You know, just like most other superheroes. I mean, like uh, Spider-Man, you got Spider-Ham. Right, right, right. Like Into the Spider-Verse, yeah. Right, yeah, and nobody has a problem with that. And there's Spider-Man 2099. Mm -hmm. You know, people are not as dumb as uh, the people 
behind the scenes who sit in these boardrooms and offices and make these decisions. And when and you know, and me and you, you know, we've been following movies forever. Right. And we read how people make these decisions and everything like that. And I really think that they believe that audiences are really stupid, that there's certain things that they're not gonna get. And my thing is, well, listen, just because you don't get it doesn't mean I'm not gonna get it. Right, right. And uh, oh, so here's a here's an interesting fact too about the casting. Apparently, they really wanted Ray Liotta in this movie because they offered him Harvey Dent, Bruce Wayne, and the Joker, and he turned down all three for Goodfellas. Um, although he said he later regretted that because you know he realized like what a big cultural phenomenon Batman was and what an amazing opportunity it would have been. I actually saw Ray Liotta give like an informal kind of talk or something like that. I went to a book signing and he was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people was asking him questions, stuff like that. And they asked him, you know, well, what movie role, you know, because everybody always asks an actor that, you know, yeah. well, what movie role do you really like? I was watching an interview today with Denzel Washington where uh, Jamie Foxx asked him, well, what role do you regret turning down? He said, oh, well, they wanted to give me the Brad Pitt role in Seven, and I turned it down. Oh, that was yeah, interesting. I- I said, whoa, really? So they asked, you know, Ray Liotta. He said, oh, Batman. He said, really? He said, yeah. They said, if I wanted Batman, he said, I could have it. That would have been an interesting pick, yeah. Yeah, and know what? Having seen Ray Liotta in in a whole bunch of stuff, I have no doubt that he could have pulled it off. Oh, especially. um, What was that that movie he did with John Cusack, Identity, where he plays the... He plays the the serial killer posing as a cop. Right. Oh, yeah, he was man. great in that, and like that shows, like he oh. could do that whole like dual personality thing really well. Such an underrated movie. Yeah, yeah, really good film. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but I have no doubt that if he had taken the role, we would be talking about him now mm-hmm. the same way we talk about Michael Keaton. Right. And, spe- I mean- and that's actually a good part to move into because, you know, let's talk about Keaton's performance because, like we said, everybody's thought he couldn't do this. Um, but one of the things that really uh, intrigued um, the producers about Keaton was clean and sober and the way he uses his eyes in that movie and and like how, how much he communicates with his eyes. Like this, int- he's got these really intense eyes. Yeah. Now, see, me. Okay, I had seen Clean and Sober. So mm-hmm. I seen Clean and Sober. I said, okay, yeah, this guy can play Batman. Right. He can do it. And then after that, there was another movie that he made called One Good Cop. Mm-hmm. It was an action movie that he made. That will, you know, and everybody said, oh, okay, well, we should have known. Of course, now you got people that say, oh, yeah, well, that was a terrific casting choice. I said, get out of here with that bullshit. You, 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 were, you were one of the ones who was burning him in effigy, talking about burn the witch, burn the witch. You know? Oh, it happens all the time. To- happens all the time. Like people did that with um, Heath Ledger too. I remember the backlash against him. Everyone saying that, you know, why are you going to get a gay cowboy to play um, the Joker? And yeah. my response to that is always, well, first off, you know, he's not he's played more than just one role in his life. And second, um, have you ever seen the Joker? I mean, the whole his like obsession with Batman is often been compared to like a homosexual obsession to begin with. So it's not that big of a leap. Right. Exactly. Exactly. As, as a matter of fact, uh, there. Ha- um, what was it? 
I'm trying to think. There was some graphic novel or something like that. The where Dark Knight Returns. Sw- okay, okay, that probably was in it. His, in the Joker's narration, he's always referring to Batman as Darling. Right. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. Thank you, partner. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So, yeah, there's always been that subtext in the relationship between Batman right. and the Joker that there is some kind of homosexual attraction that the Joker, although I don't particularly subscribe, because me personally, I don't think that the Joker has any sexual attraction to anything, really. Even Harley thing, you know, that whole thing with Harley is more like him having control over her. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, he likes being able to, his whole thing was that he liked being able to twist his normal psychologist and make her as crazy as he is, mm. which is what he would love to do to Batman. Did you read um, Scott Snyder's run on the Batman comics? No. Okay, uh, I recommend you check that out because his take on the Joker was really cool, and it was kind—it was more of kind of like he saw himself as Batman's court jester. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it was a really good, like, they eat the one, the first, he did two stories with the Joker. The first one was called Death of the Family. And that was a really good dive into, like, the Joker-Batman psychology. So, I'm one of, see, I recommend you check out of, that run. It was really good. Because I'm one of those people, I'm one of those people that, I don't know if you do, you probably do, because you you're just about as brilliant as I am. <laughs> uh, I'm one. Of, I I'm one of those people that subscribe to the theory that the Joker f- full well knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne, but he doesn't care because yeah, he doesn't was, care about. Yeah, he doesn't right, care right. about Bruce Wayne. He cares about Batman. Exactly. Yeah. There was. Yeah, Bruce um, Wayne, I think that was know, actually. Bruce, I think that was actually one of the plot points in the Death of the Family or in one of the other stories where he goes to him as Bruce Wayne. He meets the Joker as Bruce Wayne, and the Joker acts like he doesn't know who he is. Yeah, yeah, because Bruce Wayne means absolutely nothing to him. It's like right. that John Byrne story. Remember the story he had, the, the Lex Luthor story, where Lex Luthor finds out that Superman's Clark Kent, and he said, oh, that's a bunch of bullshit. Right, right, he refused <laughs> to believe it. Yeah, he, yeah, he doesn't think he's like, oh, because he's so clouded by his own because, well, if I had all that power, if I had the power, I wouldn't hide as a human, you know. Right. He couldn't see He couldn't see what was right in front of his face all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and then Michael Keaton in this movie, like, he, he did a few different things that became kind of like trademark for Batman. Like, the whole thing about using a deeper voice. I'm Batman. That was that was Keaton's idea. That was something he came up with, and it became so influential that it became used in every other iteration of the character. Yeah, yeah. Because, because. Okay, first of all, I love the way that in this movie, unlike the Superman movie, where we're almost like an hour into the movie before we actually do see Superman. Right. In Batman, no. In the first five minutes. You, Bam. Okay, we get Batman. You know. That's the perfect introduction. That's one of the things I like. They they really don't play up the origin story here at all. They, no. they don't, We don't see the origin until right before the final battle. And even then, it's just like this quick flashback. Yeah, which is exact. Because, okay, let's face it. We all know the origin of uh, Batman. But, however, this is unusual in, in that... Even though Batman, like I said, he we've seen him in like in uh, 
uh, Saturday morning serials and animated mm-hmm. ch- and TV series. This was the first time on screen we ever saw, you know, the Waynes being killed. Exactly. Yeah. They never the, even mentioned know, it in the original C- TV series, I don't think. No, 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 they didn't because, well, you know, that was for television. Right. And it was kind of, you know, sensitive and everything like that. Because remember, we got on Harriet. She was introduced as a character because the network was nervous. And they said, well, we got three men living in the house together. We don't want right. people thinking that, you know, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. We don't want to think that there's anything, uh, you know, going on in Wayne Manor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but. Yeah, Michael Keaton, when he does that whole thing, that whole rooftop fight, you know, even though Burton is not an action director at all. No, he's not, not at all. But he sells that scene. He That's does. one of the few action scenes that he sells. And I love that battering because, it, to me, that's like a homage to the 1960s right, as right. well. When he, yeah, you know, because it folds out like the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Battery and the whole way that thing is set up, where he slowly floats down, and we mm. don't know how he's doing that at first. It's, oh shit! How is he doing that? You know, and he beats up the two thugs, and we see how scared they are of him and everything like that. Which to me is why Michael Keaton sells this movie so effectively. Because mm. to me, Batman's not supposed. Okay, Bruce Wayne's not supposed to look like a guy that could be Batman. Exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. And what's great about it is that scene, too, like the the famous line, I'm Batman, Keaton ad-libbed that. He wasn't supposed to say that in the script. In the script, he was supposed to say, I am the knight. Nah, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked, no. that, that and it, It's such an obvious thing, right? But it became such an iconic line. Because, because Keaton, okay. And know what? He does it later on, too. And I'm going to get to that in about 30 seconds. <laughs> That line is so iconic because Keaton says it with such authority. Yeah. There is no friggin' doubt in this man's mind. And once he says it in our minds either, mm-hmm. this is Batman, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> he says it with such authority. And then later on, he has a scene where he's having a big charity banquet in Wayne Manor and Vicki Vale played by Ken Basinger. (laughs) (laughs) And the reporter, Alexander Knox, played by Robert Wall, another great comedian. Uh, They're going through, you know, this whole hall of ancient suits of armor. And I love that scene because like a lot of scenes in this movie, and that's one thing I want to get into later on, is that there's there's very tight economic scenes that tell us a lot about these characters. Mm-hmm. But they're walking through this hall and they're looking at all these suits of armor and everything like that and, and they stop in front of one and Alexander Knox says, okay, well, I wonder where he got this from. And Bruce Wayne has been walking behind them all this time and they mm-hmm. don't know he's there, which also says something about the characters because Batman has been trained by ninjas. Of course he knows how to walk behind people and they never know he's there. Right, right. See what I mean? Yeah, he, he's been walking behind them all the time. They don't know he's there until he says something. And then he gets that also... That that's another hint, too, because they're like, you know, where's this from? I have no idea. And then Bruce Wayne just says it's Japanese. And they, both yeah. turn, they look at him. They're like, who are, how do you know? And he says and he just looks at them like they're crazy. He's like, well, I bought it in Japan. Yeah. It's that look he gives. Them. He said, well, I bought it in Japan. And then Alexander Knox says, oh, well, who are you? And he says, I'm Bruce Wayne. And he says it with the same authority that he yeah, said. Yeah. He said, I'm Batman. 
But and and this scene and the the scene right before that when when Vicky's veil is looking for Bruce Wayne, right? And she goes up to him and she's tapping him on each shoulder and he keeps turning in the other direction. And when he finally <laughs> faces her, she says, do you know which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne? He says, well, I'm not really sure. And then he starts to follow her. And then when he comes in later and she says, and he says, hi, Bruce Wayne. And she says, are you sure? And he says, yeah, this time at least. Yeah. And it's, and it's just such a, the way he plays a, the character. It's he's got oh. this total like, you can see he's this he's got this total absent-minded rich kid vibe to him and you know like just totally flighty and not concerned with anything any it's perfect like he really uses his comedic timing to a lot of benefit to help sell the difference between bruce wayne and batman and he walks such a brilliantly fine line in that scene that mm-hmm. could easily have been pushed into a total comedy. Right. But he does it in such a way. And OK, this is how I read that scene. And I and matter of fact, I watched the movie today mm-hmm. in preparation for this. Man, I worked so hard at this research, folks. Y'all have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> such tough research I do for this podcast for you. And I watched it today. And that scene it's so finely tuned that I watched it today and even now, and I've seen this movie like about a dozen times, mm-hmm. I'm still not sure if, as Bruce Wayne, he's really that distracted, absent-minded, or if, because he's in public, he's playing like that. Right, because then you contrast that with, there's a scene after that when they're still in there and he has gone down to the Batcave and yeah. he's watching everything on the monitors and he's got his glasses on. He's got this really pensive look on his face. And, you're oh, like, and you look in and you look in his eyes and see, again, we go back to Michael Keaton's Keaton's eyes. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few actors. You can see this cat thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the and I and I'm sorry, folks, but I just love the notion that Batman puts on glasses, you know, when he's working. <laughs> I don't, there's, there is it's just something. It seems like the thing. It's I'm my guess is like he doesn't really need them, but it's part of like a like a mindset thing. Yeah, yeah, like it puts him in a different frame of mind. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when he puts it on, you know, like he because there's a scene later on where Alfred. And again, another scene I love because this is a delightfully low tech thing, but it plays up the fact that to me, the Nolan movies don't do, except for The Dark Knight, Mm. that Batman is a detective. So Alfred brings him this file that's uh, all about Jack Napier. Mm-hmm. played by Jack Nicholson, who becomes the Joker. And he's looking through the file. Now, he doesn't put on his glasses then. Mm-hmm. You know. But he puts it on only when he's in the Batcave, I notice. Oh, that's a good point. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Watch the movie again. The only time he puts on those glasses is when he's sitting in that, you know, he's in that little computer car, which also, again, another reason why I love this movie. He's got tech that's in the Batcave. Mm-hmm. But it's not like this huge sprawling complex we see in later movies. No, it wor- it's very it's almost like minimalist. It works really well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just enough for him to do what he has to do. Yeah. He's got uh, a little laboratory that's off here. He's got the computer monitors over there. He's got the cliff where he parks the bat mobile mm-hmm. over there. You know, yeah. And the um and I'm glad you brought up the detective part because that because I watched this movie yesterday again, and that was one of the things that jumped out to me is that most of the Batman movies they kind of gloss over 
the fact that he's the world's greatest detective. I mean, there's there's this one a little bit in Batman Begins and then in The Dark Knight, but other and a little bit in. Uh, Batman v Superman as well, but for the most part, a lot of them tend to just gloss over it, and they kind of look at him as like a costume James Bond almost. Yeah, yeah, and um, I really don't like the whole notion of Batman just overpowering his opponents with uh, superior firepower and just beating the piss out of them. Really, right. you know, that, you know, Batman can fight. Yes, we know that he's a superb fighter, but. That's just one aspect of who he is. He's also, like you said, a detective. In fact, he is the world's greatest detective. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things and, I like about this movie is that they show him figuring out what the Joker's doing. Right? Yeah. They, like he he recognizes him as Jack Napier when he sees him in um, at City Hall in the, during the day. And then he goes right. back and, fir- and first thing he says, like, you know, Jack Napier's still alive. I need everything the police have on him. And then after he reads the file, he finds out that you know, one of his aptitudes is chemistry and he knows yeah. about, you know, already Joker started poisoning products. So then he says, okay, we have to go, we have to go shopping. We have to figure out Let's how he's doing shop. this. And yeah. he tests all the different compounds together to figure out what the connections are. And again, we see where Michael Keaton in that scene you mentioned, because he reads the file, like you said, then he sits back and takes a beat and we look at them eyes and I said, damn, the man's thinking. Right. And then he just looks at Alfred. He's like, Alfred, let's go shopping. And if you're not right. And it, it seems like the dialogue seems totally incongruous. It seems like he's just the, like this flighty eccentric billionaire where he just jumps to something di- completely different. But in reality, when you're looking at his eyes, you realize he's just come to a conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, Michael Keaton, I can't say enough about his performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, next to Kevin Conroy, he's my favorite Batman. Right. You know, I I mean, I'm sorry. I just feel that this guy, you know, he got internally what makes Batman and Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. work because, you know, you can't play the both of them as their which I think is a problem like um, a problem people had. Well, I know I had with the uh, George Clooney when he played. He yeah, Batman. George Clooney did nothing different between Batman and Bruce Wayne. He did yeah. full on Adam West, where he, he didn't change his voice or anything like that. Right, exactly. That's what he did. He did a full blown Adam West, whereas uh, Michael Keaton and, uh, and um, what was the other guy, Christian Bale. Yeah. Even though I don't I don't care too much for Christian, but I do recognize that Christian Bale did understand the dichotomy that Batman and Bruce Wayne are two separate people. It's not like Superman where I, and okay, people tend to lump them in the same way. I said, no, 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 no. It's two different things because mm-hmm. Batman and Bruce Wayne is two separate people. Right. They're two separate people. As has been said before, Batman is the real person and Bruce Wayne is the mask. Mm-hmm. Because Bruce Wayne actually died that night when his parents was killed. Right. And that's right. when Batman was born. You know, it's not like Superman who had nurturing parents and grew up and everything like that. Superman is an identity he adopts. Well, there's one uh there's one episode of Batman Begins that did or not Batman Begins, Batman Beyond that did this really well where um Bruce Wayne is hearing uh like there's some sort of mind control thing or something like that, or I can't remember all the details. But at the end, uh, Terry McGinnis, the young Batman, his protege, he asked him, "Well, how did you know it, you weren't going crazy?" And 
uh, Bruce Wayne says to him, he's like, because the voice in my head referred to me as Bruce. And he's like, that's not what I call myself. And um, Terry's like, well, what do you call yourself? And he's like, oh. And he's like, but that's my name now. And then Bruce says, tell that to my subconscious. Ooh, I never saw that episode. Now you want? Now I gotta find it. Yeah, but know some? Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, because in his head he doesn't call himself Bruce. He doesn't call himself Bruce. Right. In his own head, because he's not Bruce. He's Batman. He exactly. Say, yeah. Right. Bruce Wayne is somebody who he pretends to be. Exactly. But he's actually he's actually is Batman. And uh, touching on Michael Keaton, like to bring in Batman Returns a little bit, because they show another aspect of Bruce Wayne in that movie when he's in the meeting with Max Shrek at the beginning. And you find out and like, you know, it's obvious Shrek goes in there thinking Bruce is this, you know, you know, flighty playboy. He's someone I can easily trick into helping me out. And Bruce is, you know. You know, he's flat out completely serious and he shows that he takes his business seriously and he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I think because he takes like a folder or something like that. He flings it across the desk and he tells right. him and he tells him, Max, listen, I'm going to fight you on this one. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, Max you see those, said, those different oh, aspects. And oh. then right after that, he goes out of the elevator and he meets Selena Kyle and he f- switches right back yeah. to flighty billionaire mode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's an it's an amazing performance, mm-hmm. you know. Because as I said, Michael Keaton, he gets what makes Batman and Bruce Wayne tick, and he knows right. how to make both of them work. And you know, like I said, he's in that boardroom with Max Shrek, and we see that. Okay, this is the take no prisoners side of Bruce Wayne. Exactly. This is the cutthroat businessman. But then, like you said, he go he goes outside. He meets Selena. He's immediately smitten. Mm-hmm. And now he's the guy, you know, that we saw in this first movie at that party where he's sticking pins into the dip and mm-hmm. he's he's knocking over the champagne. Glass. Yeah, it's it really it's it's a performance that I especially after watching it. Again today, I I was just sitting there and I was in awe of it because I said, you know something, this this is really something special, and, and I you, can see why, and I can see why this performance became such a landmark in right. the career of Michael Keaton, and the and in, um, the mythology of Batman because you know like you said he was the one who created that lower voice thing for Batman where because he. Because Michael Keaton was like, how do I differentiate Batman and Bruce Wayne? And he had like a bunch of different suggestions to um, to Tim Burton. And he suggested like different contact lenses or something like that. But then eventually he settled on the voice and it, he sells it so well, works so and which the only other person who's really been able to do it as effectively is Kevin Conroy, because you had. You know, Christian oh, Bale in, um, in the Nolan films, he tried, but, you know, it was like this really – it just didn't really work. It sounded like he had um, he had a sore throat. Yeah. Christian Bale never found his bat. See, every actor who does Batman has to find his, his own Batman voice. Yeah. And Christian Bale never found his Batman voice. No, no. Yeah. And then with – and Warner Brothers got smart after that, and so when they did Batman v Superman, they decided to take a cue from uh, Smallville and Arrow, where they had Green Arrow use a voice modulator, and yeah, and that and that works so much better. It's much easier to do. It takes a lot of pressure off them. Yeah, yeah, because as an actor, you want to protect your voice. Yeah, 
So you can't, you know, there's only so far you could take that raspy, growly voice. Right. You know, before you, you know, like you said, before you start doing some kind of damage to your voice and OK, well, now I got to take a couple of days off, you know, to protect my voice. So, yeah, Which, it makes yeah, a lot in, more sense. In The Dark Knight, they actually did use post-production on the voice. But the problem was because Batman talks a lot more in The Dark Knight than he did in Batman Begins. But the problem was in Begins, Bale had already established this kind of like gravelly, growly voice. They had to keep that in the sequel and it just doesn't and then it just felt overdone at that point. And as a matter of fact, you know, okay, at least to me, it become distracting after a while. It does, yeah. Whereas it's not scary. It's not scary. It's just no, distra- no. like, like, dude, why are you talking like that? <laughs> there was a parody video after the Dark Knight came out where it was like the se- the interrogation scene. It's like Batman grumbling all that, and the guy who's playing the Joker is like, "What is that? Is that Bat? Are you speaking Bat to me? What is this?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, dude, here's a lozenge here. You know. <laughs> but Keaton does because his voice. It's. It's not it's it's lower, but it's not like loud or anything. It's just very kind of I, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's just like this. It's like this low intensity. It's not overbearing or anything. It's just it's almost like quiet. It's almost like a like a dark whisper type of thing. But again, just like when we were talking about in the Superman episode, which again, folks, for those of you who haven't listened to it, why haven't you? When we were talking about that the best special effect in the movie was just uh, Christopher Reeve using his voice and his body to show us how Superman could, how Superman could pretend to be Clark Kent. Right. And we saw it right in front of us. Well, Michael Keaton does the same thing with his voice and that he creates a whole other persona yeah. for Batman just using his voice. And Tim Burton said that Keaton didn't really find his voice until after he put on the Batsuit. And part of the reason was because Keaton couldn't hear anything when he was in the costume. And and he was claustrophobic. So he used that claustrophobia to like fuel his Batman persona. Oh, cool. And uh, but that, and t- taking but it back again, to the Bruce, well, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just gonna say again. We go back to the thing where okay, like now we've got like these big half a billion dollar CGI spectacles and everything like that. These guys had a little bit to work with and mm. they made it work to their own advantage because they had to figure stuff out because they didn't have a whole team of CGI. It's not like, okay, not take away anything from Robert Downey Jr. because mm-hmm. he was brilliant as Tony Stark. Right. You know, but he had a whole team of CGI guys to help him create Iron Man. Mm-hmm. You know, Keaton didn't have that with Batman. Right. You know, he had to work with what he had, and he did it, and he did it in spectacular fashion. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I want to mention was the the dinner scene with him and um, Vicky Vale, and they're sitting at that long table, and she has to shout across the room to get his attention. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that was another one of Keaton's ideas, and uh, to he wanted to bring that. Um, that was he brought like the his comedy background to that, and he suggested that they have this very long table, and then for him to say, "Actually, I don't think I've ever been in this room before." Oh, that is, I, I love that. 
Okay. Because <laughs> he, he, he looks around, and again, we got to go back to the eyes. Yeah. The way he looks around, he convinces you. And well, she's like, shit, do, you like do you like eating in here? And he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he just kind of takes a minute, and he just looks around. He's like, actually, I don't think I've yeah. ever been in this room. And he said, you know what? I, shit, I've never even been here before. I don't even, Alfred, what is this room? What are we and doing? You, know, you buy it, because you figure... Bruce Wayne's a, probably a guy who he wakes up in the morning, maybe he eats in the kitchen, but then he goes right down to the Batcave and he spends all his time in there. Unless there's like something like they have like the charity ball, mm-hmm. that there's whole sections of Wayne Manor that he closes off that he never uses because there's no reason because he never goes there. Right, yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that. And, yeah. it, and does, the whole you, you get the feeling that that scene when he's in there, like he probably uses that that dining room to kind of intimidate like he probably he, she's probably not the first woman he's invited over and he probably uses it as a way to like kind of intimidate them and make them think that he's like this flighty billionaire who doesn't take anything seriously and then he kind of gets rid of them that way but with Vicky there's something different going on and that bring um, that's a good segue into another aspect of this movie that I like and that we're presented with a superhero who apparently and obviously has a healthy sex life. Yeah, yeah. You get the feeling that this is not the first time he does this because the next morning after they sleep together, you know, he lies about how they're going out of town. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that's his first. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, no. Me and Alfred, you know, we're going out of town. We're going out of town. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, you got to get the feeling that, yeah, you know, Bruce Wayne, he doesn't have a problem, you know, getting a little when he wants to. And then right. he says, OK, Alfred, well, you know, just take him back to Gotham City and, you know, tell him I'll call him. Just you know, like Tony Stark at the, the beginning of the first Iron Man movie. Yeah, yeah. But that's a movie that we got a lot later so we were right. like kind of like expecting you didn't expect Batman to go to bed with a girl on the first date right right <laughs> you know you said whoa this is a... and I love the scene where Vicky Vio she wakes up and he's not in the bed and she looks over and he's hanging upside down mm-hmm. <laughs> I said oh well of course how else would Batman sleep that yeah that was that's one of the things that kind of always kind of like weirds me out about it. I think like at, at that point like I think you're kind of getting too much into the bat angle when you show him sleeping upside down. Yeah. But and you know what? Yeah. It okay, it pushes it a little bit over into okay, this is obviously meant to be funny because mm-hmm. okay, well he's Batman, so of course he sleeps upside down. But you know what? I'm willing to allow for that because there's so much that they get right. And I'm yeah, that type yeah. of person and I'm that type of person that if you get more stuff right than you get wrong, okay, I'll allow it when you do get something wrong or when you stray a little bit too far over into you know. And this movie does there are like some parts like in the scene where Bruce Wayne he goes to confront Vicky Vale in her mm-hmm. uh, house and you think he, he, you know he's getting ready to tell her well I'm Batman everything and then the Joker he busts in and they have that little back and forth and everything right. like that and you know and then Bruce Wayne he takes the silver tray and stick I guess he sticks it inside he his uses, shirt yeah he uses it as uh, his body armor right now how he knew 
the joke was going to shoot him right in that exact spot. You know, right. that's a and scene not that like does. shoot him in the face or something like that. that or shoot that, him in the head. Yeah, that, know, that, that part always, like when I was rewatching it, I was thinking the exact same thing. That scene doesn't quite work very well. Yeah, and okay, that's a scene that you say, okay, well, but that just points up the clumsiness of how Tim Burton handles action scenes like uh in the scene in the Flugelheim Museum mm-hmm. where Batman rescues Vicky Vale mm-hmm. um and then they had that car chase yeah well, well they have the car chase and then for apparently no reason at all they get out of the Batmobile yeah and that, and that car chase has got to be the slowest car chase in history oh my god <laughs> I can run faster than that yeah, I know <laughs> Taking them cars and moving, yeah, you know, and then they get out of it, and they have the fight scene that's in the alley, and then they get back in the Batmobile. There was no reason for them to get out of the Batmobile it in made, the first yeah, place. Yeah, it, it just it was just an excuse to show Batman fighting him, which was kind of a bad move because, again, like you said, Burton doesn't really do action scenes all that well. No, no, I mean, the only good thing about that fight scene, and this is one reason why I think that the stiffness of the bat suit mm. actually works because of course the actors and the stuntman you know Keaton he always he always complained that he could never turn his head right you know because when he turns that turn his whole body mm. but I kind of like that because that means that whoever the stunt person is in there they have to move very as an economy Mm-hmm. of movement. You know, we don't get a Batman that's fighting like Bruce Lee. Right. You know, when he moves, it's a very decisive move that ends the fight. Like, there's mm-hmm. one guy, he just straight up kicks his ass in the chest. Bam! And that's it. And, you know, and I like that because Batman's not there to, you know, put on a show or, you know, he's there just to win the fight and yeah. get out of there. The problem is, like, is, is it, but it's the way that Burton shoots those scenes because Burton likes... Long, likes long angles, right? He likes long yeah. shots. He likes pulling the camera out, and it does it when you've got Batman fighting and Batman can barely move. It takes you out of the it takes you out of the scene. I felt so like that's one of the things I think Nolan did better, which is he tried to make up for the fact where he's like, okay, we've got this guy in this suit, he can barely move. So instead of trying to show him clumsily moving his around really slowly, we're just gonna do quick rapid cuts. And actually, the best Batman fight scene on film was in Batman versus Superman. It was, yeah, the um, the warehouse scene. That was, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That this was is where, big. like, that's one thing you gotta. I gotta. I hate that movie, but I gotta give Snyder credit. Like he, he really did. He really did well. A good job of that scene because he just he, so, he took he it. You know what it was? Out of that scene. He he he. T- it's it's like it's like exactly what you'd see in the Arkham video games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Perfect. yeah, and he, he, that's yeah. it's, and that was great. You know, we finally see a Batman who can actually move. So that was that was well done. Yeah. I got to give him credit for that. He did a good job with that. And if you good people will allow me one more digression, I think it is such a shame that we are not going to see any more Batman movies with Ben Affleck. I agree with that. Yeah, like I. You know, when he was cast, everyone was freaking out, and I said, wait, wait, give him a chance. He's been in some good stuff, you know, just he's made some bad decisions as an actor, but he's generally, he's decently, he's a pretty decent actor. So I said, let's give him yeah, a chance. Yeah. And sure he enough, is. he did a great job. 
Not as good as his brother. I think his brother. Matter of fact, you know what? I think Ben Affleck is a better director than an actor. He's definitely a better director, yeah. And his brother can act rings around him all day long. Right, Um, yeah. You know, but I don't hate hate him with the fire of a thousand suns like some people I know, you know. Which I never quite understood. Like, even in Daredevil, like, I thought he did a good job in Daredevil. Yeah, I mean he's not that bad, folks. I mean, come on, he's not that. Yeah, okay, he's no Sidney Poitier, but you know he's no schlub either. I mean, the and guy when you're thinking about it, he- like Batman doesn't require a whole lot of range. Like I'm, I love the character, but we're not talking. Um, Jeez, I can't even think of a good comparison. You, you don't. Have, okay, you, you don't have to be Lawrence Olivier to play. There Batman. you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, no. Quite simply, you don't. However, let me say this. I was confident that Affleck could play Batman. I just didn't think he could play him that well. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. When I, I said, whoa, I may have to reevaluate my thinking here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I was I was willing to give him a shot right from the beginning. So, uh, But we could talk about that uh, when we end up getting to that movie. Yeah, when we end <clears> up <throat> getting to that eventually, because sooner or later we're going to get to Batman versus Superman, folks. Yeah. So, oh, and uh, there, there's going to be some... Uh, I think we'll have to put on the mature tag for that one when I start letting loose on it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Now, let's talk about um, the Joker, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Now, they really wanted Jack Nicholson for this part. And yes, he did. hesitated. He did not. He did not seem very enthusiastic about doing it. So what they did was they decided to to kind of bait him into it. So they went to Robin Williams and they gave, they offered the part to Robin Williams and Robin Williams, who's a comic book fan. He jumped at the chance. He's like, absolutely. I would love to do it. Then they go back to Jack Nicholson and they tell him, well, if you say no, we've already got Robin Williams willing to come on. And then Jack Nicholson said, okay, I'll do it. But I also want the, um, you know, like a percentage of the gross. Right. Which made him like, as of, 2003 that was the single movie record for an actor's salary because he ended up pulling in like around 60 million dollars for that part and And, and again and again folks just let me stick this in real quick you got to remember something okay back then when this movie was made that was a deal that was unheard of in hollywood exactly that was a revolutionary deal as far no actor in the history of Hollywood before they had got that deal. Jack mm-hmm. Nicholson was the first one to get that one. Okay. And um, so then when they decided to make Batman Forever, they wanted Robin Williams to play the Riddler. They went to him and they said, and they offered him the part, and Robin Williams said, I'll only do it if you apologize for using me as bait for Jack Nicholson. And Warner Brothers instead called Jim Carrey up because they didn't want to apologize. And after that, Williams refused to be involved in any Warner Brothers productions until the studio apologized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I because I heard that they really did him <clears throat> dirty as far as the Batman, because he's a big Batman fan, and he yeah. always wanted to play the Riddler. And uh, every time that because at one time in Batman Returns, it was talked about, okay, they was going to use the Riddler mm-hmm. and Robert Williams said, you know, and because he wanted to, and to me, I think that they should have, because Jim Carrey was such a disappointment yeah. as the Riddler 
in in that movie. He was this one. Tommy Lee Jones was this one. Matter of fact, the villains of crap in that movie. Period. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I got I got no problem with Val Kilmer as Batman Bruce Wayne, but the villains are for shit. I'm sorry. Yeah, they are. They are. You know, Jim Carrey just goes insane trying to ape Frank Gorshin, and then Tommy Lee Jones was just trying to one up Jim Carrey the whole time, and it was it just it was just a total mess. Well, you can tell from Tommy Lee Jones. First of all, he strikes me as guy's never read a comic book in his life. Yeah. So, so, and as a professional, I would have thought that he would have did a little bit more research mm-hmm. into who the character was supposed to be. As clearly, he had no idea, and I knew that whoever wrote the script didn't have an idea of who Two Face was anyway, because Two Face flips the coin one time. Exactly. And however, that yeah. coin comes up. That's what he did. He doesn't keep flipping it until the, he gets the result he wants. Right. That's not Two Face. That's that's the complete opposite of what the coin is oh for. Oh my, oh my God! Yeah, that's what the point. The point of the coin is that. Know who played the best Two Face in the movies? Well, there was Tommy Lee Jones, and then there was Aaron Eckhart. Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. What? Yeah. Remember the movie he was in. No Country for Old Men. Uh huh. Remember the scene where he's in the shop and he's buying something, and he flips the coin. To oh, decide you're the guy's right. Face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and he gives that little speech. Mm-hmm. I said that's Two Face. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's yeah, two- yeah. Although I think Aaron Eckhart did a really good job too, because there was that scene oh, in um, when they're in the car. And, you know, he flips the car, the coin for Maroney and it comes up and he says, he's like, well, it's your lucky day. He's like, you're lucky. And then he flips the coin again. He's like, but he's not. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, your driver. And then he shoots the driver while he's still sitting in the back of the car. Yeah. Okay. See, yeah, that's two. That's two face. The guy that Tommy Lee Jones played, that was, I don't know. That was two. No, it was like some sort of weird mesh of the Joker and the Riddler. And but when I say the Riddler, I mean Jim Carrey's Riddler. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, you know, listen. To me, it was quite apparent. And and mind you, I've got no problem against anybody taking a role just for the money. I know I hear this all the time from people. Well, he just did that just for the money. Well, yeah. That in America, usually a lot of times when people do a job, that's why they do it. They do it because of the money. You, well, you know, know, I mean, like, I got no- but, I mean, like, look at this movie. I mean, Michael Keaton didn't know jack about Batman when he said yes to take the role. I mean, so I think it's pretty obvious that he's doing it for the money to begin with. Right. But he also took time to do his research. Like exactly. you said, he yeah. said stuff, you know, it's obvious to me. Tommy Lee Jones just didn't give a shit. He no. just, you know, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones. Well, he took the part, as I recall, because his son was a big comic book fan. Right. And yeah, exactly. he wasn't he was actually going to say no. But then his son said, well, they offered you two face. You've got to say yes. Then he did it for his son, basically. Right. Yeah. Which, again. I have no problem with. What I have a problem with is that you didn't do your homework and said, well, you know what? Let me at least find out who this guy is I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be playing. And actually, you know something? I think that Tom Lee Jones actually had done that. He probably would have been more intrigued with the character and said, oh, Oh, you know something? There is something to this guy that I can work with. Yeah. Now you compare it to Billy D. Williams, who plays Harvey Dent in this first movie, and who wanted to play Two-Face. Like, that even... He even had a clause in his contract saying that he would play Two-Face if they used Two-Face in a movie. And then Warner Brothers had to buy out his contract. Do you know, and this is something that I found out, 
Do you know that Billy D. Williams is still getting paid? Because you, he didn't play. Because he didn't play. Uh, yeah. Are you kidding me? He's <laughs> no. Who else is still getting paid? Who? Marlon Wayans. No shit for Robin who for was Batman the, for Batman Returns. Right. Who was a? Oh. oh, hold on a second, folks. Okay. That's my phone. Yeah. That's my bat phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's for my wife. She'll pick it up upstairs. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I got an extension down here because I do have people bothering me. Mm-hmm. And I and I usually have my cell phone turned off during the day because I hate telephones, folks. For those of you who know me, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who oh, don't. Oh, one, of my, one I, of my jobs, they insist on communicating by phone. And I'm just like, just send me a fucking email. Yeah, I hate the telephone. I think it's the worst invention. Oh God, ever it drives me nuts. It. Yeah, I hate it. I, I don't like talking on the telephone. If you have a, if you ever talk to me on the phone, folks, if you have a conversation that lasts more than five minutes, believe me. We had something to talk about because right. usually I'll just say, OK, well, you know, uh, because I'm not a person that goes in for like a lot of idle chit chat. Like my wife, I, I love that woman to death. Don't get me wrong, folks. But I've never seen anybody that can stay on the phone for two or three hours talking about absolutely <laughs> nothing. I'm the same way. I, I can't stand it. Um, oh, like I, I, got, I got family members who they always want to they, they want to communicate on the phone. Like and I'm just like, can't can't we just do it through email or can't you just send me a message on Facebook? or something because that way I can do other stuff instead of being having to sit there with my attention captured for you know two hours three hours now I know what now I know what you people are thinking well Derek you're talking to Perry right now on Skype and isn't that kind of like the telephone yes but we are We've got something to talk about. about something. Yeah. <laughs> we are actually discussing something <laughs> outside of this show getting... you and I never talk on the phone no 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 we never talk on the phone Exactly. Yeah. No, we don't. You know, we communicate by email. Right. Uh, yeah. Or on Facebook. That's mm-hmm. how we communicate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, now, if I had something to really talk to you about, I would call you up. And matter of fact, if I did call you up on the phone to say, okay, listen, Perry, I got to talk. You say, oh, shit, somebody must have died. Right. Something's <laughs> important then. <laughs> uh, All right. Okay. So now, now getting we back to, uh, we were talking about <laughs> Billy D. Williams as uh, two, possibly playing yeah, Two-Face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Marlon Wayans. It's still getting because I um, okay. This is how I found out because my wife, who is a YouTube fanatic, she was watching some interview show, and Marlon Wayans was on there because he was talking about the new Netflix movie that he has, uh, Sex Tuplets. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the course of the conversation, they were talking about you know, they of course again they were asking him about roles that he missed and passed up on. Mm-hmm. He said, "Oh, you know, I was supposed to play Batman, and you know, and he was talking oh, you're supposed about to play Robin, he, right, Robin." And he said, "Oh, well, you know," he said. You know, I'm still getting paid for that. And they said, what? How are you still get?" And he explained about the deal. He said, yeah, Billy D. Williams has got the same deal, too. They said every time somebody gets a copy of, you know, uh, Batman, you know, Billy D. Williams, they got to cut him a check. They got to cut Marlon Williams a check because they was not in Batman Returns as they had been promised. And Batman Forever, yeah. So, And, you know, yeah, it's Batman crazy because I bet Tommy Lee, Will, Tommy Lee Jones is not still getting paid for Batman Forever. So yeah. if they had just because, let him play Two-Face in the first first point, it probably would have um, 
they probably would have had to spend less money on it than you know casting uh, Tommy Lee Jones to phone it in. Because my understanding is that Michael Keaton was going to do Batman Forever until Tim Burton walked. And when Tim well, Burton walked, yeah, Tim Burton walked, and it was it was the beginning of the end. Like Michael Keaton was still interested, and he spoke with Joel Schumacher, and actually yeah. they cast Rene Russo to play the love interest because yeah. it was assumed yeah. that. Um, Michael Keaton would be around still. So, but then after meeting with Joe Schumacher, Keaton decided, okay, this isn't this isn't what it what it used to be. I don't think this is a good fit, and he backed out. And so then they cast Val Kilmer, and then they thought Rene Russo was too old to play his love interest. Yeah, and then they, old. which yeah. which is bullshit to begin with. But but then they went with Nicole Kidman. Yeah, and Marlon Wayans, you know. They have went so far. There is footage of him, you know, being fitted for costumes and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, there's uh, still pictures of him in costume as Rod. He was supposed to be in the movie. And he said, yeah, to this day, he said, anytime there's a Blu-ray of Batman, Fever, you know, Soul, he said, I get a check. And <laughs> and also, with in regards to that, too, the reason they redesigned Robin's costume in the comics was because of Batman Returns because they thought yeah. Robin was going to be in it and Tim Burton didn't want that costume so they had I think it was I want to say Neil Adams they worked with Neil Adams to design a new Robin costume and and that's why if you alright for anyone who was around back then or if you look up the images online you'll remember that when they had the Batman Returns toy line they had a Robin figure and the Robin figure had kind of like this kid and play type afro. You're and right, he had a darker yeah. complexion. The reason for that was because Marlon Wayans was supposed to play the character. Mm-hmm. And then when they just when they when they realized Marlon Wayans wasn't gonna be in the movie, they just lightened up the complexion a little bit, but then they released the character as is. <laughs> and so that's why the so that's why the Robin figure looks doesn't look anything like Tim Drake from the comics. But that's but so then they use that Robin costume for Tim Drake in the comic books instead. See all the fascinating behind the scenes stuff you get here, folks. <laughs> now, Jack Nicholson is the Joker. What do you think of this performance? Masterful. A lot of people, and I've heard this complaint. People say, "Oh well, he was too old." No, I don't think he was too no, old. No, he definitely I, wasn't too old at all. Yeah, he wasn't too old. You know, because. Uh, Again, we have a guy who is adept at playing comedy and drama, Mm -hmm. and he used that to his advantage because there are scenes where the Joker does stuff that is absolutely batshit insane, but we're laughing along with him. Right, you he know, sells he the insanity it. thing. He's really sells oh, the insanity thing. Oh, like when I he does that, this. when he does that weird dance out of Vicky Vale's apartment, um, when he impersonates Jack Palance, you know, all the just the little quirks he does. He does a really good job with that. When he has the boardroom meeting with all of the gang bosses that he's sitting right. here, and they and the guy says. Well, what's with that goofy grin? And he says, life's been good to me. <laughs> Something about the way he says it, it cracks me up every time because I know what's coming. I said, oh, they don't know. This is the this is the Joker now. He's, you know, this is the guy that they had, they were dealing with before. And then he, and then I love to see where uh, Bob the Goon mm-hmm. brings in the pictures of Vicky Vale because he's been following her and he takes pictures. 
And he's looking at it and he's cutting it up. And he said, well, she's going out with this guy called Bruce Wayne. So she's about to trade up. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the way he says the lie, for some reason, it's just the way he says it cracks me up. And then the camera pulls back and it's an overhead shot. And we see all of these pictures that he's cut up mm-hmm. on the floor. And I remember when I saw this for the first time in the movie theater, somebody in the theater said, excuse the language for folks said holy fuck this guy's nuts (laughs) (laughs) well also when um when they talk about batman on the tv show and that he uses the the punching glove gun on the tv and then he gets all pissed and then he says this town needs an enema and he starts blowing Uh into the the noisemaker Uh and i love the boxing glove thing because that's Mm -hmm. right from the 60s to me that's another homage to the 1960s because that's something i could easily see uh the joker from the tv series although you know what what's weird is that all his men just wear black leather and sunglasses and then in batman returns the penguin gets the clown gang (laughs) yeah that 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 struck me as a little bit odd when I was watching it yesterday, and also then you got in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, all the all the gang members they all get the themed costumes, even in the Dark Knight, right? He's got guys in clown masks and everything. Yeah, but yeah, but Joker yeah, but, in, uh, in the first Batman movie, and despite being a more comics accurate Joker than Heath Ledger, you know he's got all the little um, all the little toy toy weapons and all that kind of stuff, but he doesn't have the the Joker gang. Well, I think that that's why I love Nicholson so mm. much, because this is like the most comic outside of, you know, Mark Hamill, mm-hmm. you know, in the animated one, but we're talking about live action here. Live right. action, this is like, okay, this is the Joker. I saw Jack Nicholson do this. Okay, this is the guy I've seen in the comics. Mm-hmm. I recognize this guy, you know, he, he does because see, and, and again, it's little goofy things that he does, like in the museum when they're defacing all of the different paintings. And again, Which, he says these little things that crack me up. He says, oh, the one dollar bill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also the, the but that was one of the scenes where they used the Prince music perfectly in that scene. Yeah. And I mean, you gotta love a bad guy that parties the prince. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh my God. It's just, yeah. I, and it's a little tough. And the guy's getting ready to break a statue or something like that. And, and he stops him and says, nope. He said, I like this one. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the painting. It was, it was something like really like gothic type painting. He's like, oh, I actually like this one. <laughs> and it's just like the rent. I think that Jack Nicholson accurately got across the randomness of the mm-hmm. Joker because he, at, at, at any point in this movie, even if you've seen it before, you still are never sure what, what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. One of the things, you know, what's, interesting, what's interesting about that, uh, the museum scene is that Jack Nicholson said that was the only thing he had to do as the Joker that made him uneasy because he's a big art collector. Yeah, yeah. And, but yeah. you don't see that watching that scene. He looks like he's having the time of his life. Oh yeah, well that's another reason why I love his book because all throughout this movie, yeah, he's the joke. He's having the time of his life, yeah, doing what he's doing. Even at the end, <laughs> again, he says these one lines that for some reason crack me up. Where Batman, they're in the tower, mm. 
And Batman is saying, yeah, well, you made me, I made you, and... Mm-hmm. You I, know, you made, I and, made you, you made me first, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you made me first, he said. And then he said, yeah, well, you know, you did drop me in a vat full of, a vat full of chemicals or something yeah, like yeah. that. So, yeah, he said, that shit was tough to get over, and don't think I didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> also, after, after Batman says, you know, I made you, you made me first, then he says, he's like, well, how child? He's like, how childish do you have to get? You say, I, I say, I made you. You say, you made me first, <laughs> and then, and then he takes out the glasses and he puts them on. He says, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? Yes. I mean, he pulls out the oldest gag in the world. He said, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? He'd say, oh my god, yeah. He's just having, he's having, he's hanging off of the side of this big gothic cathedral mm. and he looks at the gargoyle and he said what are you laughing at <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah it's, and then, but even after he dies you know he's got the little laughing bag in his jacket where it's just like he has to have the last laugh no matter what yeah bingo there you go that's why because I've heard I've had people say to me well why does he have that bag I said because he's the joker he has to have the last laugh right that's what that whole thing is about but I love Matter of fact, I love any movie where the bad guy is having a good time being a bad guy. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what Jack Nicholson as the Joker is doing here. Once he embraces who he is and he starts to enjoy his own madness, which is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's having fun with his own madness. He's in, he's having fun being mad because mm-hmm. it's liberating. And he's just going through the whole movie and he's just having the time of his life. One of the things I like about this movie too is that this was before superhero movies felt like every single movie had to have some sort of end of the world type threat to it. Like it's a very small scale idea. He just wants to poison a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Basically he just wants to terrorize Gotham City. And it works because, you know, you because now studios think, well, we're going to invest all this money into these movies, so it's got to be some massive threat that's going to destroy like the whole the whole city or the whole country or the whole world. But it doesn't have to be, and this movie shows that. Right, right. Um, yet another digression, folks. Trust me, you're going to get a lot of them if you <laughs> hang around with me. Even though I like the movie Suicide Squad, that was the thing. That was the one thing about that movie that I didn't like because it should have been had them going on a mission to some foreign country that goes horribly wrong. Instead, it, of course, again, we got another save the world plot. Well, you know what? It, you know what I think it should have been because they're if you insist on having the Joker in a Suicide Squad movie, send the Suicide Squad after the Joker. Yeah, thank you. That's what the movie should have been. Exactly. That's what I thought it was going in. And then when you get this whole thing with the Enchantress and all that, I'm like, what the, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah. I mean, okay. Why else would you have Harley Quinn on your team if not because she knows the Joker? Right. Exactly. That's what I thought the movie was going to be. Okay. Have the Suicide Squad go after the Joker. And the Joker says, okay, good. Finally a challenge. Because yeah. he just sees them. Well, you know what? Let me kill these suckers so I can go back to my real job of bedeviling Batman. Right. Instead, <laughs> you you've know? got this weird where he's like a side character and all that. And just it's just completely shoehorned in because yeah. they wanted the Joker. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it that's what it's reduced to ultimately. They the Joker's just in it just because they wanted the Joker. Right. And 
that was the only reason why they wanted it on there. Because and yeah, once you get into the whole thing, because it really doesn't say much for Amanda Waller's plan when the first mission that you have is that you have to take down your most powerful member. Right, right. It it just makes her look really incompetent. Yeah, if I was the president, I would say, well, you know what? You're going to get very familiar mm-hmm. with Bell Reeve because you're going there now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the, the design of this movie because one of the things I think they did really well was – the Batmobile and just like like the bat this is one of my favorite Batmobiles, bar none. Oh, absolutely. Like absolutely. they just this- they took it to a whole new realm. Like it wasn't because even even in the comics at this point, like the Batmobiles were not like what you see now when you look at the comics. This thing in this movie is built for only two things speed and power. Right. Which is what, you know. Because Batman realizes he may have to outrun cops. He can mm-hmm. definitely outrun cops in this thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like a, a battering ram on, on you know, this. Uh, and it's a very intimidating looking car. You know, right. I mean, you look at it and you say, holy shit. You know, it makes you want to. And you look at this, like you compare it to the Tumblr in The Dark Knight and The Batman Begins. And the Tumblr is not a Batmobile. Like, you look at it, it's just, a t- it's just a black tank. But you look at this, and you know it's Batman's car. Yeah. Yeah. And it's used to great effect. They have that wonderful scene where after he rescues uh, Vicky Vale, mm-hmm. and they're driving back to the Batcave, and they're going through the woods. Mm-hmm. And it's got like this real spooky music playing, and the leaves are flying, and everything like that. And the Batmobile that is, that is, is going a great through the Yeah. Oh my God, that's just and so evocative. Also, the way it opens, the the canopy, how it slides open, just like a Harrier jet. You know why they did that? Yeah. Why? Because when they showed Tim Burton the designs, Tim Burton's looking at it and he's like, "Where's the door?" And they realized they forgot to put doors on the damn thing. <laughs> so then they had this idea of, well, let's just have the canopy slide forward. And that's become a trademark of the Batmobile ever since. Wow, cool. Yeah. Yeah, but but again, since he's the only one driving the thing most of the time, he really doesn't need a door. Right, in exactly. That case. Yeah. Yeah. So it does make kind of sense that, yeah, because I know if I had a car, you know, well... Now I would because I'm a little bit older. But if I but if I were younger and I had a car like that and I was the only one driving it, you know, what do I need doors for? Nobody's right. getting in this thing except for me. But exactly. yeah, it, it's it's an exceptional design. And yeah, I mean my favorite Batmobile is the one from the nineteen sixty six series, but this one is a this close. Mm-hmm. I'm pressing my palm together, folks. Uh, it's a this close runner-up for my favorite. I absolutely love this. I, I love the whole design of this movie, the whole look of this movie. Mm-hmm. One thing that I like doing, folks, and maybe some of y'all might want to do this. There's some movies I watch, and I will use the controls, and I will take all the color out of it mm-hmm. and watch it as a black-and-white movie. I've done this with Batman. I honestly believe they should release Batman as a black and white movie. You know, they did that because, with uh, with Logan. They had a black and white version. Yeah. It was called Logan Moore. Because now, when you look at Batman, it looks like um, a German movie from the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. And the architecture 
really plays that up because that's what it looks like. It looks like one of them, you know, solid movies from the 30s and stuff like that. It looks like one of those cities that was, you know, built for because the whole thing was on a soundstage anyway. Right, right. Well, this goes back to something you you mentioned earlier, and that's the the timeless feel of it because you've got this like kind of gothic architecture, the yeah. the style of yeah. the cars, the clothes, everything. It's and the animated series also did the same thing where they had like these 1930s style cars and but then they had like more and they had like the art deco architecture but then they had modern technology mixed in with it too and it all just works yeah and I think that's why this movie doesn't look dated at all mm-hmm. because it has that timeless quality. It has all these different, you know, elements from different. Like I said, I was watching it and, and yeah, there were things. Like, OK, well, that's from the 1930s and that's from the 1940s and that's from the 50s and that's from the 60s. You know, there's 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 nothing in there that you could point to and then say, OK, well, this movie took place in 1969. No, I mean, you know, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. But you know, now, yeah. and now here's getting some of the criticism of it. Like when you're looking at Tim Burton's Gotham from up high, it looks amazing. The problem is yeah. when you get down to the streets, because it's all on sound stages, it doesn't feel lived in. It feels very artificial. Like even when you see people around, it's like there's only 20 people living in this t- in this city. Well, that's because we're also going by the same things over and over. I mean, like, we keep going past uh, Gotham City Hall. We keep right. going past the Monarch Theater. And we keep going past the Town Square, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, there's only, like, three parts of Gotham that we really see in this, really. There's only yeah, three yeah. parts of Gotham City that we really see in this movie. It's not like in the sequel where we get, where they open it up a little bit more mm-hmm. and we get to see more of Gotham City. Yeah. But that's in the movie... The- but that's one of the downsides of this movie is that the the Gotham City does not feel like it's a lived-in city. Whereas, you know, with um, one of the things the Nolan films did well, which they, I think it was – I'm biased because I'm from Chicago. But in The Dark Knight, you know, it's it's all filmed in Chicago. It's filmed on location. So it feels like a real city. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. also when you and take I- it back to um, – uh, Donner Superman, you know, because they filmed it on location in New York City, so it feels like a real city. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that I like the fact that this movie, Batman, it takes place in its own reality, and mm-hmm. I think that in in some super... Okay, in all superhero movies, I think it's necessary for them, even though they take place in what is quote-unquote the real world, it has mm-hmm. created its own reality. Right. So when we watch a Spider-Man movie, we're watching Spider-Man's New York. We're not watching our New York per se. We're right. watching Spider-Man's, and it has to be recognizable as Spider-Man's New York. Even if we, okay, even when we're watching Superman, okay, we know that's New York, but it's an acceptable standing for Metropolis because in Superman's world, that's what Metropolis would look like. Right. This movie works very hard at creating its own reality for Batman to operate in, so we can accept Batman in this reality. Mm-hmm. One of the problems I have, me and you've had had this discussion many times. One of the problems I have with the Nolan Batman movies is that to me it works too hard at putting Batman in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Which, which only to me points out why Batman wouldn't work in the mm-hmm. real world. You can, in order for Batman to work, you got to put him in a world where he can work. Right, right. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, what are your thoughts on the bat suit? They use the way they designed it in this movie. 
Uh, even today when I was watching it in Blu-ray, and there's another thing that I got to point out once I get past the suit thing. Um, you know what? It's still impressive looking. Mm-hmm. It still is. You know, I could see myself if I saw a guy in the middle of the night coming at me in a suit like that, I'd be scared. Yeah, I would. It's a very intimidating looking suit. Yeah, okay. It, especially in Blu-ray. It's obviously latex and, you know, rubber and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, but however, in some ways, I find it more aesthetically pleasing than, say, the Batsuit in the Nolan movies, which mm-hmm. to me is like... To me, that suit is just too busy. You know what? It's I like... I do like the Nolan suit, but one of the things I think that this movie did that they first started backing away from in Batman Forever and then they completely abandoned in Batman and Robin is that they don't keep they don't emphasize the bat symbol. And then the dark, the Nolan films had the same problem too, where it's the the symbol is just like this raised part of the costume, but it's not highlighted any way. It doesn't draw any. It doesn't draw the eye at all. But this one, they kept the yellow oval, and so then it oh, instantly yeah. draws the eye. Yeah, yeah. And like and I think, the- and like the I, I I'm some I'm someone who prefers the just the bat silhouette on the chest. I like that look for Batman better. But the reason is is it works is because it's differentiated from the rest of the costume, whereas in in. When you just when you have an all black costume and there's no outline or anything, it just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's not dramatic enough. Right. I mean, it's like Superman's S. When you see that S, you say, "Oh shit!" You know, you know, shit is about to get real. Now, when yeah. you see that yellow bat symbol, yeah, you know, shit is about to get real. And for those of you listening to this who don't know who. You know, because that was the thing that was going on way back there. Well, why would Batman have that big yellow thing on his chest? Well, that's to give the crooks a target to shoot at because right. he's got body or, or because he's wearing body armor. That's, that's the, the most, most armored part. part. Yeah, and that naturally right. draws your eye, and that when it draws your eye, it draws your attention there. So if you're right. a, a yeah. guy who's panicking with a gun, you're going to shoot at the first thing that draws your attention, which is the the bat symbol. Right, that bright yellow symbol as opposed to all this other black on there. Right. Uh, going back again to Ben Affleck, he's the guy that got the best bat suit. He, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he got the best bat like, suit. He I, looked- I got lots of criticism for Zack Snyder, but one thing he did right, at least in Man of Steel and uh, Batman v Superman, was the costume designs. Like yeah, Justice League, that's another story, but... Yeah, but, but yeah, but that, I mean... That you worked know- really well in that. You looked at him and I said, oh, shit. Well, he looks just like a Frank Miller drawing. He does. He does. Looks exactly like he walked out of Dark Knight Returns. exactly like a Frank. Yeah. Looks exactly like a Frank Miller drawing. It's incredible. But uh, what were we talking about again? We were just talking about the (laughs) overall design of the costume. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I... Now, of course, when we have Blu-ray and everything like that, and you can see all the little design mm-hmm. flaws and everything like that, yeah, it's not as awe-inspiring as when I first saw it back in, but still, it works for me as a lot of this movie works for me and everything like that. And as a little side note, I was going to say the Blu-ray, when I first saw this movie, there was a lot of criticisms that was of this movie because people say, 
well, where's all the black people? You know, because except for mm. Billy D. Williams, you know, didn't seem like there was any black people lived in Gotham City. Right. Now, when I first got the Blu-ray and I watched it, I said, holy shit, because there's all these black people that's in the movie that I never saw before. Really? If you look, yeah, if you look at the crowd scenes in Gotham City Square and everything like that, there's tons of black people walking around. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Well, you know what? This is the thing that always blows my mind when I watch a movie that I may have seen umpteen times, mm-hmm. then I get the Blu-ray and I watch it, and I'm saying, wait a minute, they must have added shit in here because all this stuff wasn't in this movie before. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this movie a dozen times. But now all of a sudden, I'm seeing things in there I never saw before. Right. Now, I don't know if it's because of the picture quality, you know, the resolution and everything like that. Maybe that's it, why I never saw it before. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, folks, there are black people in Batman. <laughs> a lot of them. So, a um, lot of them. Now, let's, let's talk about what do you think doesn't work with this movie? Like, either in general or over time? Uh, okay, the action scenes. Action right. scenes, they don't work. I, especially... When we get to the final confrontation between Batman and the Joker, and okay, you got a state of the art jet fighter with rockets and machine guns, and you've even got a computer targeting thing. And yeah, and that I, I could never understand that scene. It's like, how do you fucking miss him at that moment? And okay, I understand why he did that. He did that purely for. The comedic effect of the Joker pulling out this long-ass gun. Which also is <laughs> ridiculous. But let me ask you a question, my good friend. Mm-hmm. If you saw that same scene in a comic book, would you buy it? Um, I, I, I don't know. Part of me wants to say uh, yes. Part of me wants to say no. Ah, I said, yeah, but okay, but here's my point. There's a part of you that want, because if you did see that in the comic book, I'm willing to bet you would go with it, which is why I'm saying that I think that's the reason why that scene is in there, because it's a comic book Mm -hmm. scene, because as you well know, I don't have to tell you, there's a lot of things that you see that's in a comic book that you buy, but once you replicate them on the screen, you say, oh, bullshit. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. That's but true. That's some, a good point. You know, but for some reason in a comic book, we'll buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when a good you point. See that, when you see that same scene played out in real life, so I'm saying, I don't like that scene. I watch that scene and I cringe. Mm-hmm. But I understand the psychology of why that scene is there, because it's a comic book Yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. That's a... That's a good argument. I, it still makes me cringe, though. Oh, yeah, me too. I watch yeah. I say, oh, shit, here it goes. And I take another drink of rum. I say, okay, here it goes. Here we the go. other but, thing hey. I don't like about this movie, and it's a criticism of basically all the Batman films except for Nolan, is this Batman has no problems killing. Oh, he straight up murders at least he 15 does, yeah. people in this movie. Yeah. yeah. He and, then it, and it gets worse in Batman Returns because then he gets downright fucking sadistic. Like he straps yeah. the bomb to the guy's chest and he smiles right before he kicks him away. Now, mind you, 
I've had this argument with people because there's a scene where the Batmobile goes into the Axis chemical plant. Right, yeah. And, and you know, there's the machine guns come out. Blah, 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 and, mm. go, and it goes through the door and, you know, the bombs come out and it blows up the place and everything like that. Now, the Batmobile comes out. Now, we see Batman is stood outside sending it by remote control right. inside. So I've had people say to me, well, Batman didn't know those guys were inside, so he can't be held responsible for kill. But then right after that, the Joker's in the helicopter and he says to Batman, ah, ha, ha, you missed me. Yeah. Which oh, no, he was, me, trying, he was trying to murder the fuck out of everybody he, in that place. Thank you. Which I mean, when he me, goes in, you know, he activates the shields and everyone, all the get, all the the gang members come out and start firing at the Batmobile. No, he knew right. there were people in that place. Right. So Batman damn well knew there was people in there. And he, like you said, he blew them the fuck up. Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. He just didn't care. Yeah, he didn't care. Yeah, Batman, mur- oh yeah, Batman murders about like, I estimate, I've never counted them, but know something, now that you said, I'm going to go back, I'm going to watch this movie again, and I'm going to count how many people he had. <laughs> but, but just off the top of my head, I believe he murders at least, straight up murders at least about 15 people in this movie. Oh, it's got to yeah. be at least, at least. Like, there's got to be like a dozen guys in that, in that, um, in that chemical plant to begin with. Yeah, just in the chemical plant alone. And then there's the guy that he throws down the shaft that, you know, the black eye. Right, yeah. And then in the, and have- he takes that other guy, you know, he slams his head against the fucking uh, bell first. Yeah. yeah. And then, um. And beginning of the the movie, when those two thieves they're talking about, um, they're talking about the other guy, you know, not after everything happened to Johnny, you know, he's like, he's like, oh, he he got, he just walked off a roof, he got, he was, you know, he was insane. They're like, no, no, he's like, I heard the back got him, you know, five stories straight down. And he's like, you know, Batman right. fucking straight up threw someone off a building. And um, during the Joker's parade, where he's throwing out the money, when Batman flies mm-hmm. the black, okay, he flies down. There's about eight or nine of the Joker's men that he machine guns. Oh remembers. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, holy shit. So yeah, he straight up murders the fuck out of people in this movie. <laughs> I said Batman just smoked a whole bunch of dudes. <laughs> so that's one of the things yeah, I don't wow. like about this movie. It's just like the whole thing, Batman not killing. That just goes right out the window in these first four movies because he does the same thing in Batman Returns, and then it's so crazy because then in Batman Forever he tells he tells Dick Grayson you shouldn't kill Two Face. It's like motherfucker, you've been killing people this entire been, series. You've been, you've been dispassionately killing people left and right, and then at the end of the movie, you know. Not only does he he gives him all that speech, and then you know Robin decides to do the the right thing and not kill Two Face, and then Batman fucking kills Two Face anyway. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> then he goes. So wait a minute. So he didn't want Robin to kill him, so he didn't kill him. Well, you know he was my best friend. If anybody's gonna kill him, uh, it should be. Oh, I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Batman just. What else did I like? That whole. Ending conclusion after the bat plane crashes. Oh in front yeah, of the, the whole cathedral, cathedral sequence. Yeah, the whole cathedral. But you know why that happened, right? Yeah, because they didn't have it. They didn't know how to end the movie. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they filmed that. They didn't have an ending because Jack Nicholson reportedly at one point turned to Tim Burton and said, "Well, why am I going up this cathedral?" And Tim Burton said, "I don't know. Just go up there. We'll yeah, figure he said, it out." I'll tell you once up. you get up there. And then because he hadn't figured out what they're why the yeah. reason is. Yeah, that whole that whole except for the dialogue. I like the dialogue. The dialogue that, is great. Yeah. The dialogue is great, but the actual 
action that goes on up there with him doing the goofy dance with mm-hmm. uh, Kim Basinger, who we need to talk a little bit about, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we wrap this up. But, yeah, and then that fight with the guy, which we've already said, that's a very clumsy fight, mm-hmm. you know. And then the way that he killed, you know, he, he shoots that bolo thing that wraps him to the gargoyle. And, yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole... It's it's not. Let me put it this way: it's not a very satisfying mm-hmm. conclude. But it but it is redeemed because we get that magnificent scene at the end where the bat signal is unveiled. Right, right. And Alfred is waiting for Vicky Vale, and he's got the champagne on her, mm-hmm. and and, it, and he has that great line: "Well, Mr. Wayne wanted me to inform you he'll be late tonight." Yeah. She said, "Yeah." <laughs> and Vicky Vale said, "Yeah, well, of course he will." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, that brings me to something else that's a criticism of this movie, and that's Commissioner Gordon, where he has jack shit to do in this movie. No, wait a minute. And that that's one of the thing that is one of the things I like about the Nolan movies is that they elevated Gordon because that's because before Robin, before Nightwing, before Batgirl, Commissioner Gordon was the closest thing Batman had to a partner out in the field. And they're, you know, downplaying Commissioner Gordon's role to that much where he doesn't really do anything in this movie. That's that's a little disappointing. Yes, he does have something to do in this movie. He has that scene where he is us for one moment when he's in the Axis chemical plant and they're looking for Jack Napier and mm-hmm. he's running around taking an axe to all of the, you know, chemical things, stuff like right, that. Right. And Commissioner Gordon looks up and he sees Batman standing on the catwalk above mm-hmm. him and he goes, oh, my God. And yeah, uh, yeah. the way Pat Hingle sells that, because at that moment, he's us. Yeah, that's he's true. Seen yeah, Batman, he's seen Batman for the first time, and that's all he can say is, "This, this is the commissioner who's seen a whole bunch of shit in his time, mm-hmm. and this has just scared the shit out of him." Yeah, because yeah. he's seen Batman for the first time, and yeah, okay, he downplays him in this movie. I agree with you on that. Commissioner Gordon should have a bigger role because he is Batman's ally, mm-hmm. but. I would like to present you with the argument that we are being presented because obviously in this movie, Batman has just begun his career because the police aren't sure who they're dealing right. with yet. They even have it, you know, they don't call him Batman formally. They just refer to him as, you know, the bat really right. mostly in this movie. They call him the bat. They don't call him Batman until later on, you know, so he hasn't yet formed that relationship with Commissioner Gordon that he will have later on. Right, and I can I can understand that argument, but then in the sequels, he still doesn't do anything. And that that's where I think the ball was dropped. But I think that that tone was kind of set in this movie. Well, I give you, I know what I can't argue with you on that one. You're absolutely <laughs> right. No, you are. But I but like I said, I do love that one magnificent scene. That is a that great that is a great scene. moment. Yeah, I also do like the. I never really realized it when I was younger, but the corruption angle, like I did like how it it stood out a little bit more in as I'm watching it in repeat viewings, where like you've got um, Eckhart, who's basically yeah. pre-crisis Harvey Bullock. Because in the because most people most people probably think of Harvey Bullock, they think of him from the animated series because that's where most people were introduced to him. Where he was one of the he's a gruff, but he's a good cop. Whereas in the right. pre-crisis universe, though, Harvey Bullock was a corrupt cop. Oh yeah, 
Oh yeah, Harvey Bullock was a straight up crooked cop. Yeah. Yeah. And and it okay, this guy in this movie in Batman in everything but name. Yeah, he is Harvey. He is Bullock. Harvey Bullock. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a different name. But that's Harvey Bullock. That, yeah. That's who he's supposed to be. And like you said, the corruption angle, I like that scene with Pat Hingle. He's at, because he's at the charity ball. Mm-hmm. And Alfred has interrupted Bruce Wayne. And he told me, he said, oh, well, Commissioner Gordon had to leave suddenly. And, yeah. they, and they had that nice little conversation about the champagne. Right, right, right. And then Alfred, said, and then Alfred reminds him, Commissioner Gordon left early. He yeah. said, and then he goes out one door. He says, no, no, sir. You need to go out that door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he goes down to the Batcave, and he's been recording the conversation. Right. And he's talking to the cop, and they, and they're having the whole little, like you said, discussion about the corruption, everything like that. Because the guy said, "Oh yeah, well, you know, Bullock, he told you, but Bullock, Eckhart. no, Eckhart, he, you know, he got the line from Jack Napier, and he's going to get him, you know, because Carl Grissom and everything mm. like that. So, and like, it's a and then small he goes, when he goes to the Axis Chemicals, he's like. You know, he's like, I want him taken alive because he wants to he wants to flip uh, Napier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he says the man who who shoots Jack Napier will answer to me. I'll have right. his badge. Yeah, you know, and there's little tight economical scenes like that. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't talked much about it, but I want to get into it now before we wrap this up. Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale. She makes her entrance and is one of the great entrances in any superhero movies because we get to see her legs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it turns out that Alexander Knox already knows who she is because she's a famous combat photojournalist right. who's been to which also which is a nice little thing they mentioned Corto Maltese which if right. you're a DC Comics fan you say bam oh shit Corto Maltese I know that you that know? was from Dark Knight Returns yeah which I thought was pretty cool you know yeah. that they put that in there and as a matter of fact I've heard that country being mentioned in in other it's been used DC in other movies. ones yeah it's been used in a lot of other stuff it's become part of like the it's like one of the fictional countries in dc so now they've got that um and they used it in arrow that was where um, arrow. yeah uh malcolm took uh thea to train her but i think it's a lot of people criticize Kim Basinger in this movie because they say, well, she's just a damsel in distress in this movie. And I really don't think so. She's reported as following a story mm-hmm. and she's following her instincts. Yeah. You know, yeah. get this story. But then, like a lot of us, she just, okay, a damsel in distress, folks. This is how I see a damsel in distress. A damsel in distress is much like a reluctant hero. Mm-hmm. They both get caught up in events that are over their heads, and they have to <laughs> deal with it the best way they can. Right. And one of the things right. I like is the the scene when when they're being chased by the Joker's guys, and she's photographing the whole thing. Yeah. Right. So she's still doing her job throughout the whole she's thing still, there. Right. She's doing her job. She's photographing all kinds of stuff that's going on and everything like that, which also, you know, leads to the, the scene where Batman t- and then you wonder, well, what else did he do when he was <laughs> <laughs> because she because he's in the back cave and he says, Well, there's one more thing from you I need. And she says, What? Then his cape goes up and the bats are flying, and then mm-hmm. you just see her in the bed the next day. You said, Wait a minute, what did he do to her? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. uh doesn't that's a little creepy on retrospect. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. 
And you know something? I never thought of that until, like I said, today, which is why I like, and I know there are plenty of people, they say, well, I can't watch a movie over and over again. But I do because every time I would see a movie, I see something different in it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like I said, I've seen Batman like about like a dozen times since it originally came out. But today was the first time that occurred to me. I said, wait a minute. What else did he do? To her? Yeah, 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 yeah. He got. Why did he put her in her bed? <laughs> he left her on the couch. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a guy that murdered fifteen people. So mm-hmm. hey, he's not. He's got a lot of. <laughs> a lot One of other thing I want to mention is that Alfred Guff in this movie as Alfred, or not not Michael Guff. I can even call him Alfred because he's so yeah. like. But yeah, this, he's so like. Yeah, he is amazing as Alfred. Like, he's got that sardonic, dry British wit thing for him, and he plays it so well. Alfred should always be the one person that can call Bruce Wayne on his shit. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, there's no reason for Alfred. Right. And he and does like, you know, I it- like I like Michael Caine, you know, nothing against him. I thought he did a great job, but I think Guff really embodies... Alfred a lot more. You know what the problem with Michael Caine was? Michael Caine seemed to me to be too buddy buddy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's like his hangout buddy, his best friend. Whereas to me, even though he's known he's known Bruce Wayne ever since he was a boy, there should be a little bit of dis because okay, bottom line is Alfred is an authority figure in Bruce's life. Like I right. said, he should be the one person that can always call him on his shit. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, there's a little bit of distance he has to maintain from him. Like he yeah. still calls him Master Bruce. He still calls him Master Bruce, even right. though right. he, even though he diapered his bare bottom. Exactly. Yeah. But he still calls him Master Bruce, reminding him of his station in their relationship as well as Alfred's station mm-hmm. in his relationship. Yeah. It's a fine line that their relationship has because he loves he loves Alfred to death. Yeah. And Alfred loves him to death. But it's still a level that they have to maintain because if they don't, then Bruce may slip over into a darkness that Alfred can't pull him out of. Right, right. And if Alfred allows his affection for this man that he's seen grown up and seen the loss of it, but he still has to maintain a certain dispassionate attitude mm-hmm. so that he can say, hey, listen, you need to stop that shit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he does gets- a really good job. Um, the only other person yeah. I think who comes close to being as good as Guff is Jeremy Irons. And again, in Batman versus uh, Superman, again. there's some good things. Again, because... Again, he's got that thing where yeah. he talks to he talks to him anyway. Listen, you know, listen. Okay, yeah, and I mean, he's got that world weariness, mm-hmm. and they have a they have this terrific scene in Justice League. A lot of people don't even they, it must have went right past them. But I know you picked up on it when they're on the plane and they're going someplace, and they actually make a reference to Batman Returns. Yeah. Yeah. He says, you know, one misses the day when the biggest thing we had to worry about was wind up exploding penguins. Yeah. And I said, what? But I love that scene because when I heard, okay, when I heard him say that, I said, you know something? Yeah, I can see this as being the Michael Gow and the Michael Keaton, Batman mm-hmm. and Alfred, 20 years later. Yeah. I can see these same guys in them. 
Although Jeremy Irons is much younger than that. They they, well, they shorten the age difference between them, though. But other than that, in, in characterization, you're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, he I mean, he nails it perfectly in, like I said, and I keep going back this uh, this movie. It establishes character very quickly. Mm hmm. And we get to know these people and who they are and their motivations very quickly. And it does that with Alfred, too, you know. Yeah. Because uh, because he doesn't actually have a lot of lines. It's more what he does and what he says. Right. Even though he, he, even though I do have a problem with him revealing Bruce's identity to Vicky Vale so cavalierly. Yeah, that's that that that's a little bit that's a step too far. And they even reference that in Batman Returns, right? And he's talking about well, yeah. when Alfred's like, you know, we have to figure out what to do with the Batmobile, but we have to be discreet about it. And then Bruce is like, discretion, who's the one who let Vicky Vale into the Batcave? He's like, I'm sitting there working, I turn around and there she is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I could see Alfred bringing her to Wayne Manor. Mm-hmm. And bringing Bruce to her and said, "Listen, you need to tell her." Yeah. While I'm here, you need to tell her. I can see him doing that. I can't see him because that's like the holiest of holies. Yeah. You know the back. Yeah. yeah. That that I couldn't see. I understand why he did. And again, goes back to the characterization. Michael Gal does such a good job of characterization that I understood why he did it mm-hmm. because of their previous conversations they've had about, and they lead up to that with conversations that they have about Vicky Vale. And also, they show us in the in the apartment scene that Bruce isn't really able to do it himself. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so Alfred, right. Alfred kind of takes the initiative there. He's like, "All right, well, look, I know you're willing to do this, but you can't bring yourself to do it. So I'm going to do it for you." Right, exactly. But again, like I said, I could see him inviting Vicky Vale to Wayne Manor yeah, and bring yeah. Bruce in and said, "Go ahead and tell." He said, "I'll be here with you. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. I, I'm, you know, but you need to tell her. Right. But just to just throw her into the Batcave like that—that's equivalent to pushing somebody into a tank of sharks." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah, okay, I get that Alfred likes her and he feels that Bruce can marry her and they can have a life together. But that's a step too far. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, just one other thing, just really briefly, I want to mention was um, Robert Wool, who plays Knox in this movie. Like, you know, I've seen this movie like a dozen times and each time I watch it, like I like his performance more and more. He's just this really small character, but he does such a good job in in that in that part. You get the feeling that Alexander Knox is a guy that all he's like one story away from that big break. You know right. what? He's one he's one story away from being Clark Kent. He just hasn't found that story yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he, he, he does a, a he, he does this just like his little his little co- his comic timing in it, just his little quips, everything. He just works really well as like this unique side character in it. Um, I, I'm kind of disappointed we didn't see him in Batman Returns. Yeah, you know what? And, and that's one thing that I always wondered about. I said, you know, one day I'm going to do some research and find out about it. Because I could have seen where Knox could have been a really good supporting character in all of the Batman movies. And if I was going to do a Batman movie now, I would definitely bring him back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Knox. Because I felt, yeah, he was a, he was a very interesting character. You know, to me, he was, a again, in keeping with the timeless quality of this movie, he reminded me of those uh, 
uh, smart ass, wise cocking reporters in those 1930s totally. newspaper movies. Absolutely. You yeah. know, that's who he was. Yeah. You know, if, if this movie had been made in 1930, he would be William Powell or Cary mm-hmm. Grant, or, you know, one of those guys that played, like I said, the the wisecracking, two-fisted, you know, journalists, you know, mm-hmm. who went out to get the story with his guts and his, you know, brains and whatever, his balls and everything. Yeah, you know, the guy who stays up late at night, three o'clock in the morning, he's on his typewriter pounding out the story. He's mm-hmm. got a bottle of scotch that's on the table and a, a, a whole pack of cigarettes that he doesn't smoke and everything like that. He gives off that vibe to yeah. me. Which, yeah. Again, another reason why I like this movie because it it's a lot of different things. It's so many things that this movie pulls together and makes it work. Yes. So well, which is why I put it on an equal footing with Superman in that, again, we would never see superhero movies the same way again after Batman because we had never seen. Yes, Superman was done seriously, but it was still very light and frothy. And, you know, you walked out of it and you were like, whereas Batman was a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. It was dealing with, you know, like a damaged personality. Yeah. You know, it was dealing with a very dark villain un- who straight up, again, murders people unlike Lex Luthor, who we, yeah, okay, he's a bad guy, but, you know, he's not really that bad, even though he tried to blow up California. <laughs> and he, you know, but still, eh, he's Lex Luthor. But the Joker was downright scary. I mean, right, you know. exactly. He was, yeah, because he was in your face about killing you, you know. Mm-hmm. He, what? Um, wasn't there one guy that he electrocuted? He shook his hand. Yeah, and the, he and the, when he was in the the scene with the mob bosses. Yeah, you know he says, yeah. you know he's talking about taking over their businesses, and the other guy Anton, he says, what if I say, what if we say no? And he says, well, you know nobody wants a war, so we'll just shake hands, and that'll be that. And he shakes his hand, and he you know electrocutes the guy. And again, you have so many people like Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson and Robert Wool and even Kim Bassinger have been in a few. These are people who have been in comedies. And I think that they really actually made their comedic timing, as you so accurately pointed out earlier, they made their comedic timing work in a dramatic sense. Yeah, definitely. In this movie, because there are some scenes, especially with the Joker, like I said, that, you know, it's very funny, but there are but there also horrible shit is happening. Right, you, know, you, you really? find yourself laughing at it, and then you you start to feel guilty about laughing at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like overall, I mean, uh, I watched it today, and a matter of fact, I was just saying on Facebook early on. I said, you know what, I'm going to watch the rest of these Batman movies mm-hmm. tonight and tomorrow because watching Batman. It's like potato chips. You can't stop it just one. You gotta now. Got to watch them all over again, which is okay. I, which is okay. I haven't seen them in about two years, so mm-hmm. I'm about to. About to, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much wraps up Batman. I think the only other thing to say is that if they ever make a Batman Beyond movie, they got to get Michael Keaton back. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know what? I because uh, I know they're having this big crisis on Infinite earth uh mm-hmm. crossover on the cw they and i know they got kevin conroy or or you know they got him mm-hmm. he's gonna be in it i think they should have just moved heaven and earth to get michael keaton but you know what that he, strikes me type, he strikes me as the type of guy that would do it just for fun he might yeah 
you know, like, if they came to me and said, Mike, you know, it would be nice if you would, you know, just come on and just, you know, you don't have to be in a whole episode. Just right, be in the right. scene, you know. That would have been nice. But if they do, uh, I, I would like to see him playing an old Batman at some point. Hopefully that we'll get that happen. Because after seeing him in, um, in Homecoming and Birdman, I'm just like, you know what? The guy's still got it. And he's at the right age now. He's he he's looks per- perfect for the part now. He, he looks he more looks, he looks more like Batman now than he did back in the night in 1989. Yes, he did. If if they did a Batman Beyond or if they did a straight up adaptation of The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. yeah, because he had you know you know back then he had kind of like the the frilly hair thing going on, which it doesn't strike me as a Bruce Wayne thing. He's not. Like, I think Bruce Wayne should be more of a, an attractive kind of guy. But so he doesn't really have that kind of thing going for him, at least not at that. But as old Bruce Wayne, he looks like he stepped right out of the comic. Absolutely. One hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. All right. So we got to talk about what we're going to do next. So I, you chose this one. So that leaves it's up to me to decide for the next movie. Yeah, we're going to throw it back to you, my man. What and you now, got? Well, I thought, because you you mentioned how you wanted to touch on some of the milestone movies, but also, what's a big milestone movie that's not Marvel or DC? Hmm. There's a lot of movies that could fit in there, actually. But I know which one you're thinking of. Okay, we're going to see if you're right. I'm thinking of The Crow. The Crow. <laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> yeah, the crow. <laughs> but you yeah, I figured that's because that is, unless you count Robocop, I, which I guess listen, you could, but that is really the first R rated superhero movie. Do I know my friends or do I know my friends? <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the first R rated superhero movie, basically, unless you count Robocop, which you probably could. Or. Darkman maybe came out before. I'm not sure, but whatever. Yeah, they, Dark, yeah, Darkman. Yeah. So wh- whichever one came out first. Either way, it was a land, landmark movie at the time, and especially because it was Brandon Lee's last performance. So I figured that would be a good one to tackle next. And actually, you know what? I'm I am glad that you picked that one because it's been about ten years since I've seen this movie, and I saw, I actually saw this movie in the theater, and mm. I saw it then, and I didn't care for it then, and then like a couple of years later, I watched it again, and I still couldn't see. I said, "Well, what's the big deal about this movie?" So, I'm actually glad you picked that because it's been about ten years since I've seen it. So, I'm looking forward to seeing if maybe time has, uh, you know, change your evolved. opinion on it. Yeah, uh huh, yeah, because I like doing that with movies. I mean, movies that I haven't seen in a while. And I find that a lot of times after I've seen them again, again, I see things in them that I never saw before. And I said, oh, okay, now I get what, you know, everybody was talking about. Well, you know, a movie that I did that with was um, Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Like, I hated it when I saw it in the theater because it was nothing like. You hated it. It was nothing like the like John Constantine from the from the comics from the Hellblazer comics, but then I watched it again a few years ago, and I'm like, you know what? Actually, this is a pretty good movie. You know what? It's not a good constant John Constantine. Oh God, no! It's a terrible Constantine movie. But it's a good movie. It is, yeah. And you know what? Batman Returns falls in that category as well. It's a terrible Batman movie, but it's an entertaining film otherwise. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of movies like. the recent uh, Lone Ranger movie, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah. Now I tell people, is it a good Lone Ranger movie? No, it's not. It's a 
it's a bullshit Lone Ranger movie. However, yeah. it's a damn good western. I'd have to watch that again because I was I mean, I've never been the Lone Ranger fan, but I did not really enjoy watching it the first time. Oh, okay. But I'd have okay. to give it another well, chance. Well, that's well, that's right. Yeah, but the point being is that yeah, there are movies that you know, like I, you know, like I watch them, and for whatever reason is going on, and also some of it is just because I get older. My attitudes about certain things change. My prejudices about certain things change. And then I watch a movie again a couple of years later, you know, three, four, five years later. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I get it. Exactly. You know, now yeah. I, yeah. Everybody. So it'll be interesting so, yeah. to see if The Crow is one of those for you. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I'm looking forward to seeing it now. I got to go see because I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon or uh, Netflix or whatever. If not, I'll spring for the few bucks and just get the Blu-ray and watch right. it. Sounds and then good. we can talk about it, you know, and then after I see, I'll let you know I've seen it and then we can schedule for awesome. our next session. Sounds <laughs> Which like brings me to one thing that I want to stress always, because we're getting ready to wrap this up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, folks, by all means, if you have any suggestions, any recommendations, any movies that you would like, uh, they got to be superhero movies, though, cause, yeah. because you know the name of this podcast, the Superhero <laughs> Cinema House. So, you know, don't you know? Don't ask us to talk about the Poseidon Adventure. That's not a superhero movie. Right. <laughs> Although Aquaman is, you could ask us to review Aquaman. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Aquaman is a superhero. So yeah. So you know, throw us your suggestions and recommendations, and uh, you know, because that's what we live for. Yeah. Also, um, and if you think it's kind of on the border, then, you know, try and convince us. Yeah. Yeah. I can be convinced. Because there are some movies like, you know, I was saying like The Crow is one of those that's kind of on the border, I think. And maybe I also mentioned Robocop is another possibility. So, you know, if you think you got something that is a superhero movie, but you're not sure, try and convince us. See if you can win us over. I'm open for it. All right. Okay. Um, and yeah, we just put up, uh, I actually just before this recording, I put up a contact form on the website, which is live now, everything. Uh, it's superherocinephiles.com. Um, we've got a Twitter account too. It's um, Super Cinema Pod. And then also on Facebook. We do? Yeah, I just put it up. I, I sent you, a, I followed you on it. So check your uh, Twitter. Oh, okay, cool. Thank you. And, and folks, let me say publicly that all the technical stuff that's being done is being done by this man. And I cannot thank him enough because I do not have the patience or the expertise to do it. And I'm willing to publicly admit that. And he's done a magnificent job. So, you know, I can't thank him enough for it. And I would like to thank him publicly. And uh, I think you guys should thank him as well, you know, because anything that goes bad on this podcast, blame me. Anything that goes <laughs> anything that goes well, you give him you give Perry all the credit for it. Glad to take that. And what if we end end up getting a Patreon or something set up, I'll make sure to keep all the money for myself as well. Listen, listen, let's not get crazy. <laughs> I had a let's feeling that not, would trigger you. Let's, <laughs> not get, let's not get carried away, son. <laughs> okay, but SuperheroCinephiles.com, uh, Super Cinema Pod on Twitter, um, Superhero Cinephiles on Facebook, and uh, email address. You can just email us through the website, but if you want to email it directly, it's SuperheroCinephiles at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Um, follow us. Hopefully, we're up on 
I know we're up on uh, TuneIn and um, Stitcher, but it looks like Spotify and iTunes, as of this recording, they're still taking a little bit. They're still taking their sweet time. So hopefully they'll get us up there soon. Curse them. I'll box them both their houses. Exactly. Yeah. Come on, guys. It's been three days. Um, But anyway... Look us up on on those. Try and follow us on there or any other anywhere else you get your podcasts, or you can just go directly to the website. Uh, Derek, do you have anything to promote? Anything you want to mention before we wrap up? Um, uh, not as yet. I probably will have a bunch of stuff the next time. I'd rather save it for the next time because I probably have about like two or three things I want to talk about. So I will save it for then, and I'll you know regale the public with it the next okay, time we do. Cause we'll, uh, because we'll probably do the crow episode before october right probably yeah yeah okay we still haven't decided on uh schedule folks as to when right. these are going to come out we pretty well, much this, just the first episode it. just came out on wednesday and this one i'll probably have like two weeks after that so we're going to try like two weeks or so just see how it goes and then okay yeah, every two weeks sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, I think we can manage that. Okay. So thanks again, guys. I got nothing to promote myself either. I'm just about to start a new book because the one I was working on was uh, hit a bit of a roadblock. So I'm going to try switching gears and see how that works. Um, the only other thing is if you like Japanese movies, check out my uh, my other podcast, japanonfilm.com. Yep, I highly recommend it. Thank you, my friend. And you can listen to Derek and I talk for – what was it like two hours or so about Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai yeah you broke that up into three parts wow yeah well because the episodes on that they're usually about like 20-30 minutes so I thought it'd be better to kind of split it up a little bit oh okay cool (laughs) All right, that's all for us Uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time when we talk about The Crow okay thank you folks good night and God bless Thanks for listening to the Superhero Cinephiles podcast. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, or if you have a superhero movie or TV show you'd like us to cover in a future episode, you can email us at superherocinephiles at gmail.com, or you can also visit us on the web at superherocinephiles.com. If you like what you hear, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Each review helps us reach more potential listeners. You can also support the show by renting or purchasing the movies discussed or by picking up our books, all of which can be accessed through the website, as well as find links to our social media presences. The theme music for this show is a shortened version of Superhero Showdown, a royalty-free piece of music courtesy of FezleonStudios.com.